0: for tuning into power athlete radio nothing could be more apropos than having nutrition master stan efforting on the show during thanksgiving week while you've been shoveling food into your gullet we've been preparing a tasty little episode of power athlete radio and if you consider yourself a nutrition nerd or you've been throwing darts aimlessly at a board trying to find out why you're so fatigued you need to listen to this it's time to stop being a turkey and ride this gravy train straight to jack street I am so sorry. This is episode 286. Go
1: Power athlete nation. What's up? This is Luke. Tex. Oh, hey, this is Tex. Hey, and this is John. And we're here to bring you another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. In conditioning. In, 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 in.
2: Is in. it weird? Every time I hear the term strength conditioning use? I wait for the ing ing ing
1: i yes. don't think it's weird the weird part is that it's just not there's no voices in your head doing it for you that's <laughs> what's weird
2: <laughs> the voices
1: ladies and gentlemen don't push fast forward we have absolutely stunning savings black friday today if you're listening to this if you're if you're like the person who's sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting for this episode to and drop waiting, and, and, and waiting, waiting and waiting and waiting ing ing ing, ing. Right now is Black Friday. Head to com. Everything's got at least 20% off instant savings. We got freebies coming out. If you... Listen. What about bundles? Are we not bundling? Is, listen, is 2018 John, the year of the bundle? The year of the bundle was 2016. And what <laughs> makes the bundle so successful is the collaboration. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you don't stop and, if you stop and don't collaborate... No one listens. (laughs) Collaborate and listen. That's the whole point. No one did the collaborate part. No,
2: well, we did. It's just that our bundle, bundlees didn't collaborate the way that they should have. So you know what we're going to do? Fuck it. We're just going to sell everything.
1: Right. And we have new designs out. It's fucking, listen, now is the time to pick up your gear, people. And, and we are just weeks away from the premier strength and conditioning event In. in and, 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 in strength and conditioning ing, in. Ing. in Austin, Texas, December 7th, 8th, and 9th, the Power Athlete Symposium. Uh, listen, spoiler alert, we recorded this a couple of weeks ago. So you may be fucking too late. It may be sold out. So you're going to have to find out on your own. Head to events.powerathletehq.com to see whether what speaker lineup you're probably missing out on. The premier event we have, ladies and gentlemen, Adam Nelson. We have Tate Fletcher. We have Tex McQuoken and John Wellborn running, the peeking at the practical. You're going to squat with John Wellborn.
2: And I also am doing some Talk to Me Johnny, so you're going to yes. get a lot of John Wellborn out there. USA. Special guest.
1: <laughs> featuring John Wellborn. <laughs> Talk to me. <laughs> Talk special to me guest. Jenny. John Wellborn. Uh, we have Brad Schneider, Paralympic gold medalist. We have um, drawing a blank. Lindsay, Lindsay Matthews. Matthews. We have... Dr. Kara Miller, we have all sorts of fucking switched on people that you have. Oh, Rob Wolf, Rob for wheeze, Thank Brian you, Tex. Dr. Brian Mann,
3: Jim Kiabasso, Dr. Tommy. It would not
1: be a party without Inky.
2: No, uh, you can't have a symposium Dude. with power athlete without Incladon, uh just kicking in holes indoors mm-hmm. and wrecking shots. So
1: I call. I called him the other week to you know make sure that he's not. Well, I guess that he's alive. I don't know. You never know what that dude, because no. he's fucking so, all over the place. But he said he was just in his Cosento was just reviewed by an independent board of that reviews cancer treatment agencies. And he they have the number, the highest success rate by eightfold. Wow number two. So whatever the fuck they're doing there, he's excited to tell us about it. As you know, John, every two weeks, dude, you got to fucking hear it.
2: Uh, You know what? I haven't talked to Inky in a couple months, uh, but every time I talk to him, and ironically, um, I have to... I've just been slacking. I got to go back in there and get my testing done. Um, I told him, I was like, don't send me more supplements, dude, uh, because I'm just... I feel bad taking them if I don't know if it's not targeted. So I need to go in there. I need to get my blood work done. I need to get back into it. It's just just fucking time and just life. Yeah, life. I mean, kids, wife, I mean, business, everything. I mean, we got to do this, you know, symposium thing. Yeah, and we
1: got to record these stupid podcasts no one listens to. What's stupid? These things are amazingly
2: educational. Like this talk, we're going to have with Stan. Great episode.
1: I got, I'm not going to lie to you, I was blindsided a little bit. Um, Two hours. Yeah. Yeah. A little two hour Uh, show.
2: He's articulate and he's a sharp cat, man. I mean, Mm -hmm. in 2012, when I called him for my paleo, uh, for my um, ancestral health symposium presentation about food for performance and talking and using him as one of my uh, examples. You know, I'd been working with AJ Roberts and I wanted Stan as an example for food. Uh, He was super personable, gave me a ton of information, allowed me to have a really great talk. And, um, you know, I've read the vertical diet, I've tried his meals, and uh, I'm stoked we got him on the podcast. I think he's an interesting dude and he's got a lot to say.
1: And just keeping it simple, man. Like,
2: and a ton of good timing for that. And a ton of. synergy and a lot of the same information that we've been talking about for a number of years yes all about
1: the micro yep ladies and gentlemen stand up for doing. in (laughs) case any of our listeners don't know who you are give a quick background on on where this whole thing started what you're doing
3: well i'm just a guy who liked lifting weights i was a skinny college kid and so i started lifting and uh it just turned into a passion and obsession of mine and Ultimately after many tries and three decades I became a pro bodybuilder and a world record powerlifter and all the while I had to keep my day job and so I uh, Managed to build a few successful businesses and I think between all of those ventures uh, I've gotten the ear of the community now as a bit of a an educator uh, in the industry kind of an influencer for helping people uh, You you know from the lessons that I learned throughout my career and uh, more recently I've been training a lot of high profile athletes. And so I released uh, the nutrition and training program that I've been using with them for years, uh, which is the vertical diet mm-hmm. and uh, started a meal prep company so that people could eat foods that felt good on their stomachs. Cause I had a long history of having difficult with uh, digestive issues as most of my clients I find out are similar. So that's kind of the, the summary of what, what got us to where we're at today.
1: Nice man. Yeah. And, and just in parallel, right. we, we work on the nutrition side of things it because it, it pairs so well when we're, we're predominantly, we're working with coaches, athletes on, you know, the the technical side of training, whether it's programming or coaching. Right. But there's this, this parallel, the synergy between, you know, you, you got to eat to perform, right. Just like John was saying earlier in one of his <laughs> earlier talks at AHS in
2: 2012, John. Yeah, no. Um, geez. I mean, I, um, I, you know, Stan, I don't know if you know my history, but I played in the NFL for 10 years. And then um, as I was coming to the end of my career, I got tapped by CrossFit to come and help them a little bit on how to train athletes. And so we did that for a number of years, and I started Power Athletes shortly thereafter. And uh, the one thing that was amazing to me is how kind of screwed up people were on their diets. I mean, um, in 99, uh, you know, uh, when I was a rookie in the NFL, uh, really uh, my first supplement contract was with Mauro de Pasquale. And so Morrow did all right. my diet stuff. And Morrow actually did all my diet stuff for most of my NFL career. And uh, I remember, you know, I uh, did a bunch of nutrition work at Berkeley when I grew that's where I went to college. And the thing that blew me away was when Morrow sent me all that information, it was like exactly opposite. I mean, juxtaposed on the other side of the spectrum from what I'd learned in college. And uh, all of a sudden, man, I start you know, Morrow starts doing all my stuff. And next thing you know, like I think that second year I came in, uh, and I was about three Oh eight and I was, you know, right around eight, nine percent body fat and like blew everybody out of the doors. And it was just amazing just the switch. And so at that point I realized that, you know, the training's important, but the nutritional piece and really the rest of the piece was huge and then the supplementation. So that's really oh, cool you yeah. see some of that
3: stuff. Oh yeah. I read all the Pasquale well, stuff. You kind of grew up on, on that, uh, on that. He was one of the first guys to, to do a lot of the carb cycling, carb backloading, carb, uh, loading type of stuff that was really great for performance at the time. He was kind of a pioneer in that.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I and I still do versions of it. Um, you know, the, the way that Morrow kind of skinned my diet was kind of, you know, basically, uh, you know, based on what the training looks like, the harder you train, you know, and how you can kind of cycle the carbs and kind of push them in and, you know, Hey, if you need to be ready for a day and how we kind of periodize it for, you know, an NFL Sunday. So it worked really well. And um, it just, it's, um, and I'm sure you see the same thing, man. Like uh, when you do this for so long and you meet people and you're like, have you never heard this stuff? And uh, I actually have, I read the vertical diet, and actually uh, 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 Jesse hooked me up with some of your meals and sent me a big package of them. It's pretty good stuff. I was kind of laughing because uh, w- when I was actually eating your food, I was uh, thinking, God, I, I wonder if you know my mom because the majority of food that we <laughs> ate growing up was uh, was hamburgers and actually white rice was the majority. Yep. But we would cook our white rice with chicken or beef stock
3: instead right, of water. 100%. And you didn't call it uh, the monster mash back then. It was shit on a shingle.
2: Uh, <laughs> no, it was just what my mom it was cooked. Dinner, yeah, Eat cause, it, John. Um, yeah, we would go to like uh, what was it? Uh, what was it? Price Club at the time. And yep. uh, yeah the pre Costco Sam, uh, Sam's and all that and they would sell these fucking hamburgers like a hundred of them in like a fucking, oh, the sleeve Yeah like the a sleeve, sleeve of burgers? hamburgers yeah. and we would just like pop them off and then just like put them on the grill and when they warmed up you could peel the fucking white uh pieces of paper off them and then you would like crunch them all up and then like mix them with rice and uh that was like the majority of what we ate so when this when your meal showed up I was like god I wonder if he knows Doris Wellborn This is good yeah. stuff. So
3: You know, what's funny about it is, is that you see all the, there's some great science now. We're fortunate to have so many smart people in the industry that have, uh, you know, with their PhDs and their MDs, et cetera. And, you know, what I'm noticing is that what most of them discover is that the bros were right. And that over the last <laughs> 30 years, a lot of the stuff that you saw that worked is now being, uh, you know, largely uh, supported by the science. Now, of course, there's a, a lot of things that didn't work. Uh, but those people generally weren't successful. And if you followed the successful people over the years, uh, like Pascual, uh, did with a lot of athletes, just through the powers of observation, you'd see those that succeeded tend to do, uh, really, you know, tended to have a, a consistent, uh, framework. And like you guys started off saying that it's not any one thing. It's not just the training. These guys had all the aspects down. It's a bit of an orchestra and all the instruments matter. Uh, with the nutrition and the sleep and the hydration and the training all together and the consistency of that. Just about everybody that I saw down at Gold's Venice when I used to trek down there in the late 80s and early 90s and watch them train, uh, they ate five or six meals a day. They all trained twice a day. They all had their uh, uh, naps in the middle of the afternoon and slept nine hours a night. Any of them that you would talk to for any length of time, those were the consistent factors that you got. And it wasn't the little things. It wasn't the foam rolling and the, the five grams of creatine scooper. Uh, it was those fundamentals that they did so consistently over such a long period of time. And, that, um, and just one of the things that I've tried to focus on with my program, I said, when you read it right off the beginning, I said, this isn't magic and compliance is the science. And it's really about being able to consistently employ, uh, you know, solid nutrition training, hydration, sleep uh, techniques uh, for a long, long period of time. You have to be really, really disciplined Mm -hmm. because everybody's going to hit hurdles. And it happens on both ends, the metabolic adaptation when you're dieting and uh, the, um, uh, what would you call them, the plateaus when you're trying to gain size and strength. They exist on both ends of the spectrum because the body wants to be homeostatic. And so we just you just have to keep grinding away and being yeah. disciplined, and that's what kind of is the fundamental of my program. Isn't anything special? It's just consistently doing the things that matter very well, uh, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out.
1: Yeah. Decade, well, and, and the
2: other one, and and you you know this. I mean, uh, um, I remember when I, I think I was about two hundred and sixty when I went to college, and I ended up leaving about three hundred and ten. And I remember the uh, every year I had to make about a fifteen or twenty pound jump. You know like i was 260 and 280 then 300 and you got to make these jumps every year because you know that's what the coach expects and i yep. remember the uh like forcing adaptation in terms of eating like i mean just like like the uh it, it's just it's pretty interesting and like you know like and the lengths you go i remember um i've told these guys a million times like uh you know we would go get like the crusty's pancake mix and like every meal i would supplement with pancakes and like this, and anything we could to try to put on more size and mass. Supplement
1: with panca- pancakes yeah. or a supplement?
2: And, yeah. and and the other one was uh, <laughs> drinking olive oil. I remember old man Zang is telling me like, hey, you know, you got to do a shot of olive oil with every meal. And like, uh, so the uh, the old guy that trained me and these guys have heard on the podcast, but uh, George Zang is who invented, uh, you know, the super suits and the wraps marathon nutrition. He was the old dude that I trained with and he was uh, old Greek dude. And he's just like, man, you got to drink olive oil. Yeah, that's what the Greeks do. And just like the amount of shit that we did. And then when I run into these guys that are like, oh, I, I can't get over 200 pounds. You know, I'm stuck at 180. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, dude, I haven't been fucking 180 pounds or even 200 pounds since I was like maybe 15 or 16 years old, dude. I'm uh, Eat more? Uh, you know? And so, yeah,
3: it's really that easy, but it is very hard yeah. to say it. We know what the solution is, but to uh, execute it it's difficult. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not fun to have to uh, you know, monitor those calories and continue to, to eat more and more food. Now, I went from 140 pounds as a freshman in college to over 300 pounds in 1995 when I was started my first powerlifting meet. And uh, during that process, I learned a lot about the dirty bulk. During that time, I was also dieting down and competing in bodybuilding in between powerlifting competitions. So I was okay. going back and forth my first bodybuilding show, I weighed 168 pounds. Well, 158 actually, now that I remember it was 160 and under was the lightweight class. And so I've been there. I've, I've, you know, stuffed myself uh, to get up to over 300 pounds and I've cut down to, you know, four or five, whatever percent body fat to compete on stage. And I've done it over and over and over again, back and forth for the better part of 30 years. And so when I see, uh, athletes today that want to gain weight, I have a. It, to me, it's a real simple process. Although I know executing it's it's difficult, but I also see the big guys, the you know the Hoff of the world and the Brian Shaw's of the world, who have kind of at one point they've kind of maxed out uh, because you know I mentioned earlier when you're dieting, metabolic adaptation takes over and you start your metabolism starts to slow. But when you're gaining weight, uh, you start to get insulin resistance. And you have to be cautious just how much fat you put on because that fat acts has its own hormonal life and and can start affecting the way that you uh, metabolize food, you know, nutrient partitioning, and you end up just storing more fat as opposed to glycogen and amino acid uptake. And so with those big athletes, uh, one of the lessons I learned when I was bulking back in the early 90s is that sometimes I would gain a significant amount of fat. And when I would cut down for bodybuilding, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but that was creating insulin sensitivity so that when I bulked back up, I would add more muscle uh, for a period of time before I topped out and started getting fat again. And So like with Thor and Shaw, I had to take 30 pounds off of Thor just to get his blood work right, to get his insulin sensitivity improved. I had to bring his H1C down. It, of his was that because D. of his
2: body fat? I mean, with, with- It was.
3: He had gotten up to about 430 pounds, 425, and he was, uh, he was fatter than, than he had been in the past you, when we discussed it. Do you remember what his percentage of body fat was? Uh, I don't recall that he even had it tested, but just physically from looking at him, you could see he had, he had added more body fat than he historically had carried. And so we brought him down to 390 uh, and took his blood test and found that his HA1C had come down significantly. And we just got him sensitive again. And then rather than fattening him up on breads, pizza, pasta, and pancakes, uh, you know, we, divide, we designed a diet that was, the carbohydrates were based mostly in white rice, uh, just because that's what he could tolerate a large volume of without all the bloating and, and the like. Uh, and we just improved the quality of the foods he ate and his micronutrient. Uh, and we improved that as well. Some, mm-hmm. some was supplementation, vitamin D3 in particular, because he was down at 25. He was pretty deficient. And there's an inverse relationship between D3 and insulin sensitivity, mm-hmm. HA1C. And, and while the literature has a hard time really fettering that out, uh, you definitely see it. Don't you
2: think, and, and this is something that um, I'm always kind of on the fence with, I mean, there's a lot of research on things, but then you run into some people like um, Louis Simmons, for example. I remember when I went out to Westside, you know, talking with Louis and just some of the observations that he had made over 40 years uh, trump any type of medical or research that I'd yeah, seen. Controlled study, well, peer I mean, reviewed. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you can talk to, you know, research, but at the end of the day, if you want to know how to put on muscle, bodybuilders are usually the best guys to talk to. I mean, they understand it. And there's some certain yeah. things like that I've seen within your, you know, when I was reading your vertical diet that I thought were interesting, like, uh, you know, ingesting cranberry juice raises, um, you know, uh, like increases thyroid and like increases metabolism. So, I mean, there's just some really interesting pieces like that.
3: Yeah. And some of that, you know, I fell into, I, I have to admit, I didn't read much of the research until after the fact uh, on some of those aspects of my diet. Uh, I just found, you know, I knew how important iodine was. I knew that the deficiencies that existed in athletes who worked out a lot and sweat a lot. Um, and so I just searched for the, the, the food source that had the highest amount of iodine in it. And that happened to be cranberry juice uh, K or, um, uh, obviously seaweed and, and kelp are other high sources, but what's the likelihood you're going to eat those or get an athlete to eat those consistently? Uh,
2: maybe, <laughs> maybe you go ahead and get some sushi, but for the most part, you know, but actually my son loves, um, I my little boys, two and a half. He loves these like seaweed, like they, they come yeah, in. The yeah.
1: little strip things, yeah,
2: yeah. They're like in a tin and he tears them open and yeah. fucking hammers them.
3: Yeah. You know, I also found a lot of the things in the diet were really important to the immune system that, uh, you know, when you're competing at such a high level and, uh, particularly when you're a powerlifter, lift or a strong or, or the such and you're carrying extra body fats and you're doing those heavy central nervous system uh, overloading type of workouts you subject yourself and using performance enhancing drugs that all suppress your immune system and you subject yourselves to you become exposed to more colds and head colds and the like and it just seems like every three or four months you're walking around sniffling the head cold and you know it adversely affects your training so one of the things I found over the years is that when I employed st- strategies like that, like salting my soup food consistently, was a huge uh, benefit for my, not just my joints but my immune system. The uh, iodine obviously was huge for the immune system; it displaces toxins from the body. You know, uh, as I mentioned in the diet, the fluoride and bromine. And, um, uh, well, there's another one, chlorine. Um, those kinds of things are huge. And so, you know, we mentioned earlier. You said at nutrition. How, how much it affected performance, uh, you know, being healthy is one of the big things with the nutrition, the way that, that I designed it. It, it. First and foremost was gut health and immune system support. And now my athletes, they perform better just because they're recovering faster. They're not getting as sick as often. Uh, you know, they're sleeping better, obviously, is a huge component. I was just shocked to see that Offthor and Shaw, both of them, neither of them had CPAPs. And and that was a major contributor because you know that will suppress uh, thyroid function and it will ch- in it, it will also those guys on CPAPs now. Yes, they're both on CPAPs. Insulin sensitivity is another huge one with CPAPs, and sodium loss is another huge one. You can lose four grams of sodium a night from sleep apnea. So those things were all huge. But the immune system was big uh, for me, um, and you know somebody just recently had said on a podcast or something they were talking about. Uh, I think they were getting squirrely about the fact that I said I'm using foods with highly bioavailable micronutrient-dense foods. And they said, well, if that's the case, maybe you could just have a, a whey uh, isolate shake and some multivitamins. And, mm. you know, it just you just said that sometimes a Louis Simmons or somebody like myself with over 30 years of competitive history understands that you cannot gain or maintain a significant amount of lean body mass on shakes, And, uh, you know, when you go back and listen to 10 years ago, I think um, in an interview that's on YouTube, Jay Cutler said the same thing. He said, I've never been able to hold on to a significant amount of size, gain or maintain drinking shakes. That's one of the first things that I eliminate from uh, big athletes diets. I think it impairs or impedes progress at some point. It's a nice, you know, it's convenient and um, it might be nifty if you're, 180 pound guy that wants to stay 180 to, to use that but if you want to grow you're going to need to eat a lot of solid food and you just can't uh you can't get around that anyway
2: the old body or when i was in when i was playing the nfl um i trained with some bodybuilders actually in orange county and uh in their, their off season they were pounding all these shakes and taking all this shit the minute that they started dieting for their bodybuilding shows all of a sudden they started eating foods and I remember I was like, where, where are all the shakes? And they're like, well, you can't get lean on that shit. The only way you yeah. get it is actually eating food. And, uh, well, and, and then when I asked him, I was like, okay, uh, how, why do you know that? And he said that um, Scott Connolly from Metrics uh, yeah. paid all these bodybuilders to try to diet for their shows eating nothing but his meal replacements. And it was a fucking disaster. Like nobody, like everybody like started lying about, it. oh yeah, I'm taking this and nobody took it. And these guys were actually in, in, got paid to do this shit. And they were like, seriously, you want to be fucking lean. You want to be strong, eat real foods. We're just in the off season. We're lazy. And yeah, uh, yeah. No, I remember
3: drinking a gallon of milk a day to try and add body weight uh, when I was younger. And the uh, full fat milk was harder to gain weight on than the skim milk. The carbs were the driving factor and not the protein either. That's one big mistake that that I'll call them ectomorphs, but hard gainers, people who tend to be lean, um, they start raising their protein up. And there's a couple of problems with that. One is that your body's only gonna utilize for muscle tissue, uh, a certain amount of that protein, and the balance of it is gonna be both uh, highly satiating and it has the high uh, thermic effect of food. So you're only getting about a 70% net benefit from the total calories. And it, it very inefficiently converts to carbohydrates. The gluconeogenesis process is not uh, very effective. So what I do with all of my uh, athletes that are trying to gain weight is I'll reduce their protein intake. I did the same thing with Thor and Shaw. I brought their protein intake down and I jacked their carbs way up uh, uh, over a thousand grams a day because it's, can you know, give carbs us, uh, carbs
2: uh, uh, not, not to catch you up, but could you give us an idea like, uh, like half Thor, like what does he eat in a day? Like in terms of like total grams caloric. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking like total caloric, uh, in a day and then like if it break down his macros, I'm just curious.
3: Yeah. He'll go north of 8,000 calories a day and try and put in about 400 grams of uh, protein over a thousand grams of carbs and uh, the balance is going to be fats. Uh, and most of those fats will come from the, the red meat and eggs that he eats, the vast majority of them. Um, so that's kind of his breakdown. I, I, again, I didn't drive his protein up to 500 plus grams. It, it wouldn't have made any sense. Uh, if anything, if he stays around 360, 380, he's probably, it's easier for him to get all the food in. Mm-hmm.
1: But he's still, around, that, he's still around that mad like that gram per pound of body weight plus yeah. right
2: and, and he's also what 29 30 years old or is he younger yeah yes i think he's 29 yeah yeah. and he's what six nine like 400 pounds i mean man like yeah he's, he's
3: four 440 when he's just competed in dubai he'll usually wow. drop about 20 pounds uh over the next month before he gains again for the arnold
2: yeah there's only a few guys i've ever seen that were around 400 pounds in shape one of them being uh my good friend bob Sapp, and uh yeah. Uh, yeah. Bob was one of the only dudes I've ever seen walk around close to 400 in shape, but uh, Half Thor is fucking massive, dude. It's unreal.
3: Yeah. And you see Shaw's conditioning is dramatically improved. He's even posting selfies with his shirt off lately. <laughs> he lost about 16, 18 pounds of body fat. One of the challenges that we had with him is that uh, because I had him on top sirloin uh, and uh, he was had a leaner diet for a while. And we took 20 pounds off of him. Uh, he felt amazing. His digestion improved. His energy levels. His workouts were great. But he started to get a little, um, uh, I don't want to use the word weak, but a little unstable under the heavy yokes, the 1,200-pound yolks. He needed the extra body weight. But, so we turned him around and took him from uh, top sirloin to ribeye, threw some bacon back in his breakfast. And then we added six eggs to every meal, six whole eggs. And uh, I'm a huge proponent of that. Uh, hell that goes back how long vince garanda yeah uh and so Age he was diet. eating yeah he was eating 36 eggs a day uh, and you know the first concerns everybody oh cholesterol but this has been researched that's, research that's, that's yeah. just complete dogma i was thinking yeah man thinking we're
1: eighteen we're, bucks in eggs that's we're, a lot uh, of fun with the cash. yeah
2: man like, uh, um, <laughs> the uh yeah like it, it it's always great in like this is what's cool is um, a lot of the observations and a lot of the information that, you know, that you're that you're putting to us are things that we've uh, been literally screaming at the top of our lungs. And it's always cool when you run into people that are, you know, have found many of the same things. But it's um, it's also epic to hear some of these big dudes that are that big because people don't really have a concept of one, how big those guys are or necessarily how much they consume. But then the amount of work that they're doing in a single day just for what they're training
3: yeah. Well, the research that was done uh, on was done on burn patients. Eating 36 eggs a day had no effect on their cholesterol. Zero, none, or cardiovascular outcomes. Mm. Uh, it's also been shown, and most of this research is on men over 50 or over 60, uh, how important whole eggs are to uh, muscle uh, repair and growth. Uh, and some of those statistics are pretty significant. Um, you know, in double-digit percentiles in terms of comparative uh, hypertrophy training for. Uh, for older men using eggs, a lot of eggs. The big challenge for many, many years has been the uh, the diet heart or the fat heart hypothesis, or however you want to call that. Uh, for the for so long, since Time magazine in the 1960s, when the American Heart Association came out um, uh, after being funded by Procter and Gamble to promote. Uh, low cholesterol foods such as um, you know Crisco and margarine people associated cholesterol with heart disease and so when you would tell a parent or uh, an athlete that you know to suggest to them to eat more red meat and more eggs uh, or milk even the immediate response would be that that's unhealthy and it's taken three decades probably almost four decades now before somehow quietly behind the scenes all of a sudden the American, The recommendations for for our nutrition intake. Suddenly, there's no limit on cholesterol. There's no upper limit for cholesterol consumption. That just happened in the last five years.
2: Well, actually, about two two years ago, they put out a press release that said that there was no relationship between dietary or dietary saturated fat and dietary cholesterol. And there was no link with heart disease
3: and uh exactly but they put that out they didn't tell anybody no no they didn't tell anybody and you know how hard it was not even their
1: own employees i was actually coaching at a high school in in dc and i i had to go to battle with one of the parents she was a a secretary at the american heart association so they didn't even tell like their own employees so i was recommending uh just the the power athlete diet to our yeah. our boys to get them big and just at least healthy and I had to defend and present research just to and she still didn't be- yeah, believe no, it or buy the it. The UK, the UK it, it, is looking into taxing oh, red meat. I know, I know. Yeah, we, we got a place. we got a guy that works with us who's in the UK, and they're they're gonna they're trying to raise like a hundred billion dollars well, uh, to or avoid a hundred billion dollars of healthcare
2: cost by taxing red meat. So here's the issue, and and dude, uh, it's not the red meat. I mean, it's uh, this is it it's uh it's you know as you know it's super frustrating, but like the the biggest thing comes down to and and I think what you're talking about is just you know at the end of the day, eat real foods, and I think people have vilified this stuff because I think it it fits within a personal agenda and um unfortunately. Uh, every time, and I'm sure you run into this, uh, everybody that ever talks to me about this and poo-hoos it, I look at them, I'm like, uh, one, they don't train. Two, uh, I don't want to look like them. And three, they don't really have anything that I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, why are always the skinniest, weakest people, the ones that are trying to give me the most of diet advice?
1: Well, even higher level, Stan, why do you think fucking people are so dogmatic about nutrition and so unwilling to just accept that maybe it's not that fucking complicated? <laughs>
3: No, you're absolutely right. And of course there's the healthy user bias, which usually permeates all of the yeah. epidemiological studies. That the people who tend to eat more red meat also tend to smoke more, drink more, exercise less and weigh more. Mm-hmm. And those people who tend to eat more vegetables tend to smoke less, drink less, uh, eat less, have a better BMI and and you know, weigh less and they exercise more. It's a healthy user bias. When you separate all of those factors, you find out that uh, that the red meat isn't the cause of any uh, of any of these diseases, cancer or heart disease or anything like that, it's also the dogma that you mentioned is is a part of the uh, it's the it's the vegan propaganda propped up by and paid for by uh, you know the, um, the PETA the animal rights organizations and uh, you know where there's ethical issues I I have a lot of clients that are vegans and vegetarians
1: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, when it's an ethical issue I certainly respect that. Um, When they use fear and uh, misinformation to try and impact the dieting behaviors of other people, particularly the athletes that I work with, um, then, you know, I take opposition to it. uh, I focus on different things with vegetarians and vegans. I focus on deficiencies that they might uh, be exposed to, iron and B12 in particular, and digestive problems. Um, That's kind of the first thing on my diet is that I try and eliminate gas and bloating and acid reflux, and uh, I try and optimize mineral and electrolyte absorption. And that happens with a healthy, um, I'm not going to say gut biome, (laughs) because we know so little about it, but I'm going to say if you have adequate stomach acid and the acidity of that is down in the one to two range where it's supposed to be then you're going to have a much better outcome in terms of digesting your food. If you eat a little slower, which is what I like about the Monster Mash, it's kind of almost pre-digested with the the ground beef and the the white rice and the the bone broth. That's one of the key components for the athletes that eat a lot of food is to be able to, to chew the food, absorb it, digest it well. So they don't have all the gas and bloating uh, and they're getting, you know, they're maximizing absorption of those nutrients because we're not what we eat, we're what we absorb. And So when I deal with vegetarians and vegans, I'm trying to optimize their digestion so they can actually, I mix their proteins so they can get, you know, a, a good balanced amino acid profile. But it's also important to me that those proteins get digested well. So generally speaking, I have to supplement them with HCL and pepsin so I can improve absorption of all those nutrients. And then try and uh, shore up those deficiencies if they're not willing to take, uh, you know, say a, uh, what am I thinking here, like a desiccated liver with iron and B12. Uh, Then, you know, at the very, probably optimally, they would end up getting a shot weekly for, you know, D3, B12 and iron possibly, uh, which could dramatically improve their, their health.
2: Yeah, at, at this point, I'm not even really interested in working with people that are on that vegan and the vegetarian deal. I mean, I, I, like uh, we've had people for a number of years reach out and, hey, could you do this on? I'm like, uh, we're just not the right people for you. Yeah. Um, I can't ethically recommend it. And I realize that people have this, you know, ethical like, hey, I don't want to hurt. And I'm just like,
1: ah. Yeah, it's hard like, to argue with that. But uh, I am no, stand when people start to like. They're, they have a different agenda besides the ethical... Well,
2: but have you ever noticed that the vegan argument kind of kind of cascades? It goes from its health, and then you when you break that down and show that it's not healthy, well, it's and, and then it goes into another sustainability. one, and then it's like sustainability, and we mm-hmm. actually know it's bullshit because there's not enough available acreage on this planet to produce enough calories to feed our people. I mean, we had Peter Ballersted on, who's the world's leading forage agronomist, that's like there's not enough air, uh, free area for us to farm. Like if you converted the entire planet into farming and we were to grow these foods, there's not enough uh, calories per what was it per A acre, acre to feed our population. The only way we're going to be able to feel, feed our population is through the, uh, you know, the grazing of beef, beef and rudiments. Uh, Buffalo. And, and he's like, that's the only way he goes, if you were to look at like a buffalo and be able to say, Hey, this X amount of calories, he's like, it's the only way the math ends up working. So after you kind of stomp that, and then you also they're like, Oh, well, what about methane gas? And you're like, Well, there was five times more animals that were, you know, grazing animals on this planet pre Columbian era. So that's not the case. And then you get to the next one, then it's like, well, it's ethical. I'm always like Jesus Christ. I'm like you guys fucking pivot more on your <laughs> arguments than any other fucking person I've ever run into. Well, so my the deal- other
1: person because I'm right here, John. <laughs> uh, well,
2: <laughs> but dude, uh, at that point where I'm just like, man, so good, good on you. Uh, I did work with a vegan individual and trying to figure out how to get them uh, protein in a form like I'm like, there's only so much hemp and pea can do. I I, I don't know how else to make this happen. So you're better than me. You
3: you touched on something interesting there. You mentioned ruminants and that could take us in, you know, if we want to go down this road into terms of, I look at everything in terms of a good, better, best scenario. If you're a bodybuilder, powerlifter, competitive athlete, strong man, et cetera, even CrossFit, um, then we're always trying to get that last 5% or 10% out of performance. And so in the good, better, best scenario, you notice in my diet that I prefer red meats over uh, chicken and turkey. And everybody, and
2: I, Yeah, I mean, seriously, but, I fucking hate chicken. And I know as a bodybuilder, how many chicken breasts you've eaten as a bodybuilder, especially when that was the deal. It's fucking awful. Like if I see chicken, I'm like, I'll eat it, but I'm not happy about it.
3: But that's kind of what's left over now from this quote unquote health, uh, focus that we've had for all these years uh, of eliminating eggs and eliminating red meat. You need your protein at an animal source and adequate source is, is chicken or turkey. Um, and what I've discovered is, and this is both from personal experience and now with the athletes that I work with, when I switch athletes from egg whites and chicken breasts onto red meat and whole eggs, their performance improves, their energy levels improve, their body composition improves, their skin, hair, and nails improve, their recovery improves, strength, all of it. And it's, it's across the board. And the difference that I'm going to uh, you know, talk about briefly here, is the ruminant animal. I believe that uh, the red meat, because of the four stomachs in a cow or, a, uh, like you said, bison, uh, you know, they, they regurgitate their food, they chew their cud, they redigest it, and they have the equipment necessary to convert those omega-6s into omega-3s, into monounsaturated fats. And a lot of people don't understand that red meat is over 50% monounsaturated fat. And then th- that makes that... Uh, that food better for you, uh, more absorbable, that, that heme iron that you can absorb. Uh, the B12 is very rich in red meats uh, as compared to a chicken. Now you've got a single stomached animal that's eating primarily soy for the three months of its life and the uh, nutrient density that it provides you is much less than that of the red meat. And so I don't, I don't have any of my athletes on chicken. I don't eat it anymore. I haven't had it in years. Uh, Preach. You think Amen. Preach. <laughs> yeah. You can get protein from anywhere, yeah. but I'm not a macro guy anymore. I, I I think it's easy to get proteins, carbs, and fats from a whole I was actually going to hit you
2: on that. Um, So I read the vertical diet, uh, not before this podcast, but actually when it came out, I bought it just because I was, you know, I'm, I'm always interested because at the end of the day, people will always ask me questions. Hey, what do you think of Stan's vertical diet? And uh, I hate to be one of those people who are like, well, I didn't know. I'm out of the know. And I'm like, dude, if I, you know, if I want to know something, I need to actually invest in the information and and, uh, and go and the one thing that kind of struck me was that you didn 't make macro nutrient recommendations you 're basing it on food and uh, I thought that was cool and one i i 'm sure the question that you get overwhelmingly is well, how much should I eat? what are my macros and so, yeah you
3: know well the first question is how much should I eat and that 's a good question uh, how many calories because I do believe it 's a calorie equation and while i 'm Keen on food quality and hormone uh, optimization in terms of insulin sensitivity and the like, uh, I do understand that first and foremost it's a calorie equation. That's not to say all calories are equal, but I'm not in that conversation of, of a pop tart versus, uh, you know, a, a complex carb. It's just an idiotic conversation to have. Uh, so with calories first, and uh, you know, by that token, really, if you want to just look at what you ate the last week, or if you want to do your BMR calculation, uh, that's fine with me, but wherever you start, it's just a starting point. Then we make adjustments ongoing based on whether or not you're getting the results you want. But I ask a few extra questions. Did you gain or lose weight is just the first question. You have to ask beyond that. How's your energy? How's your strength? How's your bowel movements? All of those things really impact the sustainability of the diet and whether or not it's really doing what it's supposed to do. If somebody loses strength, or has uh, horrible um, cravings, then you're going to need to address those, or there's no sustainability. They're not going to stay on the diet. And so calories first for me, yeah, it's important. And then I quickly skip over macros, but for the fact that you, after calories, you want to control for protein. And I usually fix that at a gram per pound, and there's obviously outliers. Uh, but where they put fats and carbs beyond that, I'm not dogmatic about it. If, if a keto diet works for an individual, meaning that's something that they'll stay on, consistently that i'm happy to accommodate them with some uh you know some cautionary notes in terms of of anaerobic performance and the carbohydrates necessary to fuel that and sodium depletion because of the loss of water with the loss of carbohydrates um and so i'm cautious about those things if intermittent fasting works for an individual because it restricts their time window so they end up eating fewer calories that's fine with me i just uh i caution them that to optimize athleticism, you're going to need protein about every four or five hours to retain. You brought up some, yeah, you,
2: you brought up the home run and this is something that, I mean, 10 years ago when people were hitting me up on IF, I remember thinking like, ah, it's just a really cool way to just to limit your calories. Cause at the end of the day, you're just opening up your feeding window. And if you consume X amount of calories within a four or six or an eight hour, you're never going to be able to consume as much you did over 12. I just thought it was a, a easy way to starve yourself.
3: 10. Yeah. Well, and, and there, is, there is some uh, there are some populations that, that uh, with respect to keto and intermittent fasting, they just aren't able to control their appetite. And when they start eating carbs, they, they eat too many. And that's really the, the key to that thing. It's not necessarily the carbs are bad for you. At a calorie deficit, you can have 70 or 80% carbs and still lose weight. This whole insulin hypothesis thing has long since been disproven. That Stanford NHANES study did, did that very well uh, and the, the, keto diets and the, and the fat adaptation, there may be some people over an extended period of time, maybe marathon runners that, that can, uh, you know, find some benefit. But for the most part, to me, it's about compliance. If it works for you, go ahead, uh, remedy the deficiencies such as sodium, obviously in, in the keto diet. Um, but for performance athletes, I'm a little more particular. I've, uh, if you're intermittent fasting as a performance athlete, I have to ask why. Are you insulin resistant? Uh, you know, uh, what, what's the point of that? Because we know there's no mechanism in the body to store protein. And so if I've got somebody who's training very hard twice a day and their body reaches for amino acids to do some repairs and they're not there and they have to wait, they might not lose five pounds of muscle, but it's not the optimal scenario. Uh, not to have that those nutrients available when you need them. And I think some of the research, uh, I think uh, Jorn Tomlin, uh, a PhD in, um, in protein metabolism, just put out a, a research study recently uh, about protein intake and, you know, suggests you eat about every four hours. You get about 40 grams of protein per meal. You eat about 40 grams before bed. This is optimal for performance. Um, the statistics coming out or the, the research coming out recently talking about how intermittent fasting increases growth hormone. Those of us in the industry understand that that's kind of a false flag, whether or not that translates into more fat metabolism or, uh, what we know it won't transfer into an increase in, in IGF one and soft tissue muscle repair and growth. Um, but they use that as some sort of testimonial for the benefits of, of intermittent fasting but it doesn't improve performance. You can't, just because something increases growth hormone doesn't necessarily mean it translates into improved performance. Well,
2: you you have to have the available, I mean, if you think about the Uh, difference between like, um, I mean, you know, we we always use the difference like what uh, asked people like, yeah, like a a Chihuahua and a Great Dane, and they're both dogs, what's the difference? And most people are like size, we're like, well, uh, the Great Dane has more uh, growth hormone or IGF-1 receptors. And I mean, that's really it. I mean, the bigger the person, you know, theoretically, and then you, you know, this in terms of like, uh, uh, muscle receptors and this, I mean, certain people react to certain things very, very differently. And if you look at like, you know, as you think, when you look at the top pro bodybuilders, the guys probably have uh, a lot more genetic opportunity to do that. And then they probably have more receptors for the things that they're doing. I mean, yep,
3: a hundred percent. And I guess that, you know, that kind of long winded aside Gets us beyond macros and into micronutrients. And here's where I see the biggest problems occurring, yeah. especially with active people. If I'm dealing with CrossFitters or, again, strongmen, powerlifters, bodybuilders, um, UFC fighters, and the like, these people are more likely to be nutrient deficient than an average person. We know that about 5% of the population is probably iodine deficient, but about 65 to 90% of athletes are iodine deficient because you sweat it out. And so the idea that exercise uh, makes you uh, healthier is a misnomer if you don't have the proper nutrition to fuel and repair all of that deficiency state that you're creating, all those hard workouts and the muscle tissue breakdown and the deficiencies in sodium and iodine and potassium. And so I found that, that athletes, for the most part, um, tend to be deficient. Uh, particularly women, iron and B12. Those are huge because they're eating egg whites and white fish and broccoli. And there's no iron and B12, at least not an absorbable form in those foods. And so that's why they end up uh, in in the doctor's office after a show with uh, horrific um, health problems is because they're micronutrient deficient. And that's why I I put red meat in there. I find that vitamin D3 deficiency is huge. Uh, You know, Hofgård was 25, Shaw was 25, Dan Green was 25. And, you know, 30 to 100 is the normal range, and you should be in 60 to 80 in my estimation for healthy D3. And it it has so many impacts. And uh, salting your foods. Athletes tend not to eat at uh, fast food restaurants, and they tend not to eat a lot of processed food. They don't eat cans of Pringles. And so they end up sodium deficient, plus their work rates and their sweat rates. You know, an average athlete sweats out two and a half grams of sodium an hour. Uh, and so you have to add all that back in. So if they're not using a salt shaker, then they're going to be deficient. They're going to be dehydrated. And dehydration, to me, isn't a lack of water. It's a lack of uh, electrolytes in their body fluids. Uh, so those things become huge for me. And I focus on macros. So potassium is another huge one in terms of uh, performance. Um, for cramping, for uh, uh, blood sugars, because potassium and glucose molecules uh, attach or come together to form glycogen. There's just so many different, what you would think were little things. Um, I, that's one of the reasons I don't support the, if it fits your macros diet. I understand why that, you know, that's there. It It, it improves compliance, but when you have athletes who aren't, Uh, paying attention to the micronutrients and they're just eating the if it fits your macros and they're using uh, uh, you know foods that aren't terribly nutrient dense then those deficiencies will manifest themselves and it'll impair performance so I'm not big on that the, the the if it fits your macros program for that reason for athletes with deficiencies if you have a limited caloric intake if say you're you're dieting and you're fixing yourself at 1750 calories or so every single calorie counts within that ceiling and if you're eating a scoop of peanut butter as opposed to uh you know getting a a red meat for that protein or that fat or a whole egg with the k2 and choline and biotin uh then i think that that uh you're you know you're definitely uh you know, Leaving, uh, leaving a lot uh, on the table in terms of optimizing performance because peanut butter is not going to give you either the quality of protein or the quality of, of absorbable micronutrients, uh, but it seems to be such a big piece of, of these dieters' diets on these restricted calorie diets.
1: Yeah, because it's fucking delicious. <laughs> I mean, Stan, have you had peanut butter? Uh, I'm
3: like, I like dude. I've uh, so dude. I have not.
1: Honestly, I've not
2: had, I've, have not had no, peanut butter. I've for sold myself on almond a long butter. Fucking time. And uh, like, I try to get the kids to do it, and then uh, my wife is like, God, she got them peanut butter. And I had, I had some. And I was like, it's fucking good. I, it was as good as <laughs> I remember it. Um, well, uh, two two things. One, um, how how are you like in the. Uh, you know, like, how are you hitting them with potassium? I'm just wondering for the food. I mean, obviously bananas, but I didn't know if you had another way that you were hitting banana, uh, potassium for the, your athletes.
3: Well, a lot of folks don't know there's 100 milligrams of potassium in every ounce of bison or red meat that you eat. So that's a significant source. So that's how you're hitting uh, it? Yes, that's that's one good location. You have to you have to string together a host of sources, all of which I think are essential to the diet. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Because getting 4,700 milligrams of potassium a day is difficult. You have to be deliberate about it. And so you can get two cups of spinach that'll get you 1,500 milligrams of potassium. Uh, You can mix that in four ounces of water and a little bit of or four ounces of orange juice and a little bit of ice water and put that on your um, on your blender uh, and mix that up and drink it. It's another 500 milligrams of potassium in that orange juice. Um, there's, uh, uh potassium and yogurt, there's potassium in oranges that I put in the diet every day. Uh, those yeah, are what, all, I, I what's have to deal with potato. the
2: oranges. I, I, like, um, I read your thing, uh, when you were ma- trying to relate between fructose and oranges. And like, I always thought like fruits, not fructose, cause there's other factors in there. There's fiber. There's a million different things. Sure, so, sure. but I, but you are a big proponent, especially for people that are, you know, type two diabetic or people that are, you know, insulin sensitive that the oranges do something for it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Now I'll, I'll finish off by saying with respect to potassium, I throw a potato in daily and that's 900 milligrams of potassium and a medium potato. Like a white so potato? Combination, just a, a golden potato. It mm-hmm. could be a, a sweet potato. It doesn't matter. I have a potato a day in my diet. I've uh, uh, at least half a cup of, of uh, Greek yogurt in the diet, another 400 milligrams of potassium. The fruit obviously is in there. The spinach is in there and the red meat is in there. So those are I have to cobble together all of those sources to get the potassium, but it's huge for people in terms of water retention, cramping, energy levels, um, uh, inflammation. Uh, people that are arthritic, uh, it really helps with those things. So on to the orange juice and and some people, you know, initially you might poo poo that, and they're like, oh, you, you know, drinking orange juice, fructose, fatty liver. Well. The research has been done. There's plenty of science to suggest if you keep those totals under about 75 to 80 milligrams or grams of of fructose a day, your liver can handle, a healthy liver can handle 75 to 100 milligrams uh, or 100 grams of uh, fructose a day. But this isn't high fructose corn syrup from soda pop. This is fruit, but it's still the fructose in the fruit, not necessarily the fiber. You don't get the same benefit from breakfast cereal and it has fiber in it as well. Uh, so, it's the fruit in particular, the fructose in particular, that stimulates the liver. It elevates uh, the body temperature, and the liver likes that fruit. It's healthier that way. Uh, in my In my personal experience, before I even did the research, I discovered that it brought my AST and ALT enzymes down, and this was when I was using performance enhancing drugs. And I would get an appetite suppression from uh, just before a powerlifting meet. The only time I would use uh, something like D-ball was the last 30 days before a powerlifting meet. And in my experience, it would rob my appetite immediately, within a week. And that's because your liver senses the toxins that are coming in and shuts down your appetite. It thinks you're, you're pouring poison into your body, which you essentially are. And so my appetite would shut down. And that's a terrible thing to happen 30 days before a powerlifting meet. And so... I discovered with a a little bit of research at the time that I might be able to offset that using fruit. And I don't even think I recognized at the time that it was the fructose in particular, but I started dosing fruit almost like medicine. I would take about 10, 12, 15 grams of uh, maybe four ounces of orange juice or half an orange uh, three or four times a day. Now, historically, for about the last 12 years, I've had a blood test done almost on a monthly basis. I've had over 100 blood tests done. And it's just part of my uh, behavior, my, uh, uh, I'm a bit of a hypochondriac and, and a bit of an OCD, so I track everything. And I watched my liver enzymes elevate, my AST and ALT would elevate as my appetite went down, and that's uh, you know a pretty clear correlation or causation uh, from uh, the dianabol in particular. And when I took the fruit, my AST and ALT went down and my appetite came back. And so I utilize that with my athletes, most of them experience the same thing. So I dig into the research and you find out that that in fact the liver health does improve. Uh, 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 Things like uh, thyroid function improves because 80% of thyroid is converted from T4 to T3 in the liver. And so it also increases your body temperature, increases your metabolism when you eat fruit. Um, When uh, anesthesiologists put uh, a patient under for surgery, when they bring them back, they test their body temperature. If it's too low, they infuse them in their IV with fructose, raises their body temperature. So I employed this with uh, bikini and figure and physique girls who traditionally would uh, would demonize fruits and not eat them before competition. And one thing that generally happens with these girls is is that their body temperature lowers. Typically, you want it around, uh, you know, they. Body temperature is 98.6, but generally it really runs between about 97.8 to 98.4. And their body temperature would, would drop as a part of the metabolic adaptation from the, the, restriction, the calorie restriction and the, the excessive cardio and the loss of sleep down to about 97.6, 97.4. And I would have them put a thermometer under their arm in the morning and hold it there for 10 minutes to get a very accurate reading and do that consistently. When I introduce sodium, when I introduce iodine, when I introduce fruit – All of a sudden, their body temperature raises up, 98.4, 98.6 in the morning. And we know how effective that is because that's your basal metabolic rate where 70% of your daily calories are consumed. You cannot cardio away a metabolic adaptation, but you can with proper micronutrients, proper sleep. I absolutely eliminate those morning cardio sessions and try and get them to get eight hours of sleep a night. And with sodium and potassium and calcium, also uh, significantly stimulates metabolism vitamin d3 to improve insulin sensitivity obviously the iodine that i mentioned and the fruit Uh, suddenly they're firing on all cylinders and the iron and b12 from the red meat and it's life-changing and it happens very very fast like within 72 hours these women will go from being just exhausted and uh, brittle hair and, and and brittle nails and and dry hair falling out to all of a sudden feeling a glow and to having energy and to uh you know their body composition changes very quickly within just a week or two they can feel themselves tightening up they have more energy in the gym they get stronger and it just happens over and over and over again it's not even by chance it's it's uh it's just happens
2: no i mean potassium. Uh, <laughs> I, I was waiting for him to take a breath and keep going uh no uh the um The other question I had uh, that was perfect uh, was when you were talking about uh, half the and those guys putting on muscle, you were talking about not limiting carbohydrates. Do you go the other way when you're trying to lean somebody out? Like, let's say you're trying to get ready for, you know, a bodybuilding show and uh, to go back to when we spoke and geez, I think it was in 2012. I remember I called you, you were in Vegas. Do you still live in Vegas? yes i do yeah so i remember we were talking and um you were talking about mixing coconut oil with your white rice and red meat and we were kind of going back and forth but i just remember um you didn't seem like you were cutting carbs at the time and i remember you were getting ready for a show or maybe you were post that but uh is that something that you kind of play with a little bit more with trying to put on muscle versus leaning people out like is the carbohydrates really the big piece for that
3: no. Uh, and here's why. This is why I'm not a big fan of keto diets. I think people lose muscle on them. I think they get dehydrated on them. Uh, and this is for athletes. Again, this is for people who are trying to maintain muscle strength athletes, performance athletes, uh, whether it be CrossFit or, or any of those. I'm just not a big fan of keto. I try and keep the carbohydrates in there. And very for a very similar reason to the fructose. It's because, you know, the reason for carb backloading or for refeeds is because your metabolism slows down and you get dehydrated and you lose three parts water to every one part carb and you lose the, the, the electrolytes as a result um, of that because there is no water in your body. It's a fluid that consists of uh, water and electrolytes and sodium and um, the like. So uh, I'm cautious about restri- over-restricting carbohydrates even when dieting. I believe it's a calorie equation. And that if I can get you at a calorie deficit, then I'm monitoring your energy levels uh, because the likelihood that you're going to cheat on your diet is going to be uh, generally it's sodium depletion first. And, and that gives you cravings. Potassium depletion gives you cravings. And then you start people start overeating is what happens or they lose so much energy that they can't train effectively. And when you're on a calorie deficit, you have to be training uh, at a bit at of. A, at a, a very high level to maintain muscle tissue. That's the big thing about dieting is just holding on to as much muscle as possible. You're going to lose some, but the idea is to lose as little as possible. That's the engine that burns the fuel. That's the only thing that we have uh, working for us in terms of our, our, um, our BMR. And so I, I don't eliminate carbs. But I do try and keep them around the workout period, even though the research suggests that if you're at a deficit for the day, that whether or not you're, quote unquote, burning fat in a fat burning zone while you're doing cardio, uh, that has no impact on the full day's fat consumption based on the calorie equation. you you just a
2: cardio guy when, when you were competing?
3: No, not at all. Now I, and I made that mistake. I used to do cardio before bodybuilding shows. and I watched my legs just disappear underneath me. And so I don't promote it at all. I I would rather burn those calories, stimulating muscle tissue and hypertrophy by doing two-a-day workouts. So all of the people I train for uh, physique competition, figure physique bikini bodybuilding, uh, I take out cardio. I'll do the 10-minute walks after each meal because I think that has so many more. Uh, uh, beneficial effects in terms of gas and bloating and insulin sensitivity and digestion uh, optimization Um, but I won't do any more additional cardio than that I'll just have them do two a day workouts they'll burn plenty of calories that way but they won't be sending the wrong signal to their muscles cardio especially steady state cardio says hey uh, you know I need you to do this kind of work so I need to get rid of this muscle it's heavy it has a high oxygen demand it has a high nutrient demand we got to get rid of this muscle quick so that's why I don't do uh steady state cardio with my athletes. 90% of it's diet anyhow. And no amount of cardio is going to offset somebody eating a, uh, you know, a jar of peanut butter when they were supposed to have a teaspoon or a tablespoon.
2: <laughs> yeah. But, and, and and I found this years ago, like I remember working with people and they were, you know, like, uh, and this gal actually that I was working with said that she's like, I can't buy the peanut butter or the almond butter. I said, why? She's like, well, I take like a teaspoon. And then I walk around like the, the Island, and I come and I get another <laughs> teaspoon and I like went through this. food's so yeah. like, not that clean. Yeah, it's, it's, I should clean it with yeah, more oh, peanut yeah. butter. And then, yeah. and then she's like, I, I found myself at, you know, um, you know, having eaten half a jar and then, then I was like, she's like, so what's the solution? I'm like, don't buy the fucking peanut butter. Like just don't have it. Yeah. Like, if
3: you can- That's the only time I restrict carbs is when I'm concerned that an individual has no self control and they'll overeat carbs. Uh, and that's I don't restrict them for any other reason, not not to be keto or whatever. One of the most important things about carbs and training, if you're a competitive athlete, of course, is for performance for that that uh, fuel source for anaerobic training. Um, but also they're very anabolic in the muscle. That's where they exist. And so you have the the water, the sodium, uh, it it creates all of the the uh, metabolic environment for for the right, you know the stimulation of IGF one. That happens with carbohydrates and water in the muscle. Uh, So when you deplete those, you lose all of that uh, because I'm a big believer in hormones. I don't believe in the insulin hypothesis, but I believe in optimizing hormones. Uh, And that's one of the ways that you can do it is to have adequate carbohydrates in the muscle to fuel them during your workout. But be at a negative balance for the day.
2: Do you uh do you, um like for us? I mean, we we train at six a.m. because that's just when our workout time is. Because unfortunately, when once work gets rolling, it's tough for us to break out. Uh, do you, if you were having somebody, let's say, train at six a.m., would you have them wake up? I don't know, four thirty in the morning, early, eat a meal, or is the sleep more important to be like, hey, I want you to sleep till five thirty, get up, and then get your butt to the gym and then train? You know, the sleep's most- way
3: more important, <laughs> and there's there's certainly going to be adequate carbohydrates unless you're at a deficiency state and have been for a while and you're really, really lean and getting ready for a show. For the most part, athletes don't put themselves in that position, crossfitters and and the like, bodybuilders in offseason, off-season. There'll be plenty of carbs in storage from what you ate the previous Mm -hmm. evening. Uh, Now, if somebody's training twice a day, uh, then I'm introducing carbohydrates intra or what we call para-workout, I guess. They'll sip on the way to during and after their workout in the morning so that the second workout is uh, is dramatically improved. And then they can eat their normal meal after training in the morning. So I'm not that particular. And I'm not a big fan of fasted uh, cardio in the morning. I don't think it has any benefit over uh, uh, just the calorie equation for the total calories for the day. What you're burning at any given time is really less significant than what your calorie equation is for the day and how many calories that you burn in comparison to that intake over the course of a 24-hour period or even uh, uh, over the course of the week. Do you
2: have people monitoring their daily calories in terms of burn? Like, are they wearing like a whoop band, which I'm wearing? Um, you know, we've been testing all these different wearables and I, I think, uh, it's pretty interesting. Um, what I, or, um, I think it's pretty interesting to see kind of like, uh, you know, from like, let's say an example of like, uh, today we, we trained and then we had to move, a we made a big fire rock pile up on my land. I mean, so then like you look at like, hey, uh, here's a course of a day post from somebody who gets up and they just train for 30 minutes a day and then they sit behind a desk all day. Like it's pretty significant. Like on some days I'll burn, you know, seven, eight, nine thousand calories and other days where we don't go outside or do anything where it's just I'm sitting at a computer. I might be at like thirty seven hundred four thousand. And so, being—is there? Do you monitor your calories, or are you looking at it and saying, "Hey, I know that if you're, let's say, training for one hour weightlifting, mm-hmm. on when average, you're, you're going to build or... yeah seven to eight hundred calories during that hour. Are you actually monitoring them?
3: I don't have a wearable uh, that I'm using, but I do look at their workload. Their days off, they may be able to eat fewer calories than their days of training. Although the studies suggest that it's really the calories for the week. That that seem to matter more than any particular moment or day, even. So, I just do it more so because I know that if they eat a few more calories on leg day, and they get to the gym and have those carbs in their stomach, they they just feel better in turn. You know, mentally, uh, they can hopefully exert. You know, put in a harder workout, and at the end of the day, over time, with an uh, you know experienced athlete that's been training for a long time. Uh, that intensity matters. The the progressive nature of your training matters. You want to be, at least be able to match what you've done previously, even if you're at a deficit for as long as you can, uh, in order to retain muscle tissue because the body um, it's homeostatic and it probably doesn't want to hold on to all that tissue unless it, it feels like it absolutely has to and it needs the stimulus. So I'm really focused on the quality of the training. Um, uh, and That's why I'll manipulate calories. It's really for that reason.
1: Yeah, it makes sense.
2: No, I mean, uh, and, and the idea of... um, I, And, dude, the thing which is so ironic is I remember at 99, uh, Morrow talking to me about what he called about the calorie bank. And it was like, hey, I want you to look at the calories you eat over seven days. I don't want you to get hung up or overeat or under eating on the day because it's or really... A meal, a, yeah, right? or, or a meal. And he's like, you know, people go crazy with this stuff. He's like, if you can break, break it up into a week-long block, um, it all of a sudden, you know, kind of fixes. You under eat one day, overeat the next. And he's like, it just... I guess what he said is it uh it promotes people to or it helps people that you know cuz if you get to the point where you're counting every calorie it kind of makes you OCD and then people just go off the fucking rails I mean I'm sure you've seen it where people are breaking almonds in half to try to get exactly what they need and at the end of the day <laughs> uh I mean we saw and I So what was interesting was uh, as an NFL player, um, you know, in kind of that environment and then being, you know, coming into the CrossFit world. And I realized I was like, man, I've seen more eating disorders and more craziness with the CrossFitters than any other thing that I've ever seen. I mean, I'm like, I've seen NFL players that I mean, it just it's it's pretty interesting. It just blew my mind. But uh, that whole idea of, uh, you know, meticulously counting calories and with the zone diet and all that. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I thought we got rid of Barry Sears years ago, but still still massive in that community.
3: Yeah, and, you know, this year I worked with three CrossFit national champions. I worked with Camille LeBlanc and Ben Smith and Becca Voigt. And, uh, you know, the diet, you're right. They had a lot of the same uh, stigmas about certain foods, excluding certain foods. Uh, They uh, all had some digestive issues uh, historically or currently. Ben Smith even uh, ended up uh, getting heat stroke a month before regionals this year. Uh, went out on a really hot day and did a really long workout. Uh, now, he had had heat stroke a year prior, and that's one of the biggest indicators for, uh, for the likelihood of heat stroke is a previous occurrence. Uh, but it was, it was hot, and he was, he was definitely not uh, at his peak, and he ended up with heat stroke. And so I reached out to Dr. Sandra Godick's group. Uh, that's the Heat Institute, and she's a Ph.D. in thermal regulation and hydration And uh, they work with NFL athletes, the Philadelphia Eagles in particular, and they do sweat testing. They put patches on them, and then they determine how much they sweat per hour, how much sodium, to see what a salty sweater they are. And they have offensive linemen uh, on that team that sweat four grams of sodium an hour. Now, mind you, that's 10 grams of salt. And so they have to design a hydration protocol that replaces that during practice and during games, Uh, whether or not they, they load them Uh, before the game and then give them some you know an ample amount during the game and then refeed them after uh and those working with those people i worked with um sandra grodick's group she turned me on to one of her associates there livingston who uh, helped us get ben smith recovery but they also helped us um with uh hofthor and and shaw's program shaw sent in his sweat test uh because the world's strongest man was uh in manila and it was really humid there and so they were sweating quite a bit. And so all of these athletes, the CrossFitters and the the strongmen, use a hydration protocol that I designed based on the information I got from uh, the Heat Institute and from uh, George Lockhart's work with the UFC athletes. I've worked with George for a few years now, and he's just uh, just a goldmine of information with respect to hydration. And so we would make sure that they got adequate sodium in their food throughout the day by salting all their meals, which is the primary source. Drinking, it's very, very difficult to do to get an adequate amount of sodium in a drink like a Gatorade. There's just not enough in there to give you a real effective dose. And so they salt all their foods. But then about a half hour before an event or a a training session on a hot day, they'll take in half a teaspoon. And in this instance, it was pink salt. It's a little uh, more palatable. And half a teaspoon of salt, they'll just put it on their tongue. And then they'll rinse that down with, say, eight or ten ounces of water or maybe two or three ounces of orange juice diluted in, in six or seven ounces of ice water um, just for the, to get it down, about 30 minutes before training. And then when they go to perform their event or they go train, they have significantly more uh, sodium in their system. Their blood volume increases so when the muscles start to pull all that, um, uh, those fluids in, then, uh, then they don't become dehydrated or deficient in those fluids. And I think a recent interview by Dr. Di Nicolantonio, author of The Salt Fix, um, he mentioned that uh, it can improve your time to exhaustion by up to 20 minutes, which yeah. is ridiculous. Um, and you just don't get that from anything else. You know, I, a lot of folks will drink coffee before a workout because they need energy, because they're hitting a wall. And you know, it's, a, it's a substitution for poor hydration, poor sleep, and poor nutrition mm-hmm. is what it is. Uh, and the, it, uh, but it tastes
2: good too. I've read the salt fix. And um, so I, I did some testing and I, I think I, I got up to almost 10 or 12 grams of salt a day. And the most amazing thing is when I would get up, my ver- my uh, HRV, my heart rate variability was through the roof. And uh, as I'll track my sleep at night and my resting heart rate was down in like, I want to say like 39, 40, 41. And wow. so I saw almost, um, you know, my, my resting heart rate was like, I want to say during sleep and rest was like 48, 49, and 50. And then I almost dropped like seven or eight points. And then my heart rate variability on the days that I supplement on the salt went through the roof as much as 20 or 30 points. And then I would drop it out and it would fall and my heart resting heart rate would go back up to the point where now, I mean, I think in the morning I'll get up and do, uh, like, I, I forgot how it all works, but it's like I try to, like, you know, my goal is to hit 10 or 12 grams a day uh, every day and um I'll put it in like uh, mineral water I'll put it on food I'll just you know I'll mix it with anything I can to mix try to get it it in my up. hair?
1: What do you think keeps it up that night slick?
2: <laughs> yeah and uh I mean that was uh pretty interesting but yet man with just like everything like uh, I'm a believer but yet there is counter counterproduct- or I'm sorry there is a uh, counter information about oh no that he's all wrong in this and, I, and you know, I got hit by uh, by somebody the other day. Well, what about this? What about this? I'm like, at the end of the day, I saw my heart rate variability go through the roof. I saw my resting heart rate drop by seven or eight points. And, um, you know, I mean, it's like I hate to say it. The proof's in the pudding. I mean, if, you know, you're observing with the athletes. And I personally observed it. So it's it's hard to fight against that where you're like, you know, if if I have personal experience with this, you know, it just... Kind of blows my mind. I mean, I, I remember when I was in the NFL when we first came in, they used to give us salt gum uh, all the time. You know, if, if it was hot, here's salt gum. And then in about two thousand, two thousand one, Gatorade came in. They got rid of all that, and it was Gatorade in the packets and the whole deal. And uh, and at that point, I saw more people cramp during training camp than I'd ever seen. And I always, yeah, well,
3: unfortunately, him, sugar can uh, pull sodium from the body as well, and and trigger the kidneys to to start urinating. So. That's a challenge. Now, you do want carbohydrates with your sodium. That's the vehicle. That's what, what helps uptake the sodium. But you got to be careful how much sugar you pour in there with it and under what circumstances. People drinking it throughout the day, of course, will have more issues. But salt was big for me. With I mentioned earlier my immune system. Uh, between sodium iodine and vitamin D3, I haven't had a cold in almost three years. I did a rhino's rant, I think it was January of 2015, uh, 2016. And I was talking about how I was sick the whole month of December and finally went in and got a blood test done and I was D3 deficient. Well, a couple other things I remedied at the time was sodium and iodine. And uh, I missed one workout in the last three years since January 2016. I had a little bit of a head cold and the next day I trained. And I travel all over the world. I've been in, in, I think, 14 countries and, and 24 states in the last year. And I've got two kids, six and four, bringing home sniffs and sneezes all the time. And I'm at expos shaking hands and talking to people. And uh, it's like I'm bulletproof. I I don't, and I hate talking about it because people think I'm bragging, but that was not my history. My history, like I mentioned earlier, every three months I was having a nasty head cold when I competed in the world's strongest bodybuilder at the Olympia. Hell, one of my eyes was almost shut. My head was purple and about the size of a pumpkin. I was 305 pounds. I know what it's like to be unhealthy and I know why I was there. And so I, I know now at age 51 I'm healthier than I've ever been. The second thing beyond immune system is my joints. I had chronic tendinitis in my knees for over 10 years. Uh, I had MRIs on my hips where doctors said I needed them replaced. I had to pick my leg up to get it out of the car. I couldn't sit at a theater or, or on an airplane for any extended period of time without really bad arthritic pain. Now I have none of that. And I think a huge component of that is the sodium intake is amazing for the joints. sodium potassium together. Uh, You know, of course, I like the fact that I do the 10 minute walks. Now I did a lot of banded work to get a lot of blood flow into those joints to get them to heal. But I couldn't lift my left arm up to put a plate in the cupboard and I couldn't pick my kids up, which was one of the kind of, one of the big things that caused me to step back and, and reassess my training and what I was willing to put up with. And so I'm, Uh, I started doing the, you know, the banded work and more blood flow. But between the vitamin D3 and salt and iodine, uh, my health has been extraordinary. My blood tests, like you just mentioned, your heart rate. I went in to get a coronary angiography just to see the calcification in my arteries, uh, which turned out to be less than 30%, which they only score less than 30 over 70 and in the middle. Uh, So it was extraordinary as well. But when they put me down on the bed and had to uh test my heart rate to see whether or not they could put me in the machine. Uh because they'll give you drugs if your heart rate's too high. It was forty eight. Wow. And I was 240 pounds, you know, training every day. I'm not a just small a little guy. guy.
2: Just a little yeah. guy now.
3: <laughs> I've got a, I've got a heart rate of forty eight. And I'm you know I'm taking in, like you say, twelve to eighteen grams of of salt or a day. So uh it's been huge for me. I haven't had any adverse reactions from my clients, but I'm cautious to, to supply them with the research that shows that people, even people who are salt-sensitive, hypertensive individuals who take sodium, if they get adequate potassium, magnesium, and calcium, and I put that in their diet, that's where the yogurt is, we just talked about potassium, um, if they get adequate potassium, magnesium, and calcium, even the hypertensives do not experience a significant increase in uh in uh, uh, blood pressure. And I've even had a heart patient, a friend of mine, I I posted his results on the internet recently in the medical community, just went apeshit because he was able to come off of statins and he was able to come off of blood pressure medication. And his sodium was at five grams a day of sodium, which is right in the safe range. But he was eating his potassium, taking his 10 minute walks, getting adequate magnesium and calcium, got his vitamin D3 up. And his own heart surgeon who had for. I think four years now, been seeing him on a monthly basis or so, and um, uh, that put his stent in his heart, uh, his blood vessel. Uh, his own heart surgeon was the one that recommended he come off the medications because his blood pressure was so good and his uh, coronary calcification score had come down. So these things can happen. That, that's one example. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of, of anybody else's patient, but, um, you know, I think that there's uh, a lot of opportunity for improvement with, um, you know, nutrition and lifestyle changes and whether or not you come off of medications is really up to your doctor. But uh, you know, that's my disclaimer, but I, I've seen it happen many, many times.
2: Awesome. No, it's uh I mean, it's super enlightening. It's always good to to hear this information put out, and you know. And what's nice is to have a individual who has performed at such a high level. I mean, not not only with powerlifting and that, and you know, obviously, uh, you know you know articul- taking, well, taking
1: others to the well, level yeah of-
2: but i mean i'll also articulate in such a way that they can present it i mean and you know this man most people are so abrasive and they don't do a very good job of articulating themselves and then when they do get in a the corner they just fucking get upset about it so no and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's 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 good information and uh it's great to hear and I'm, i definitely enjoyed the vertical diet and I, I actually um some of the things where i scratched my head i was like oh that's that's really uh, insightful and, um, like the, uh, yeah, the cranberry juice one was, was, I, I was kind of like, huh. So I went and like, you know, pulled up and was like, ah, you know, like, let's look at cranberry juice. Is cranberry juice going to be able to stimulate that? And I think there were some other interesting properties associated with it. Um, you know, obviously the salt one, which, which was cool too, but yeah, the orange, uh, it makes sense. I mean, now, it, you know, I got to go back and do some more research. Um, but, uh, yeah, the carb one is definitely interesting. I mean, it seems like today, uh, everybody's kind of Putting so much emphasis, and we've seen it for the last couple of years, it's like, you know, carbs are bad, but, you know, for me, I don't really view macronutrients as bad. They're not going to come rob me in the middle of the night and they're not going to, you know, <laughs> steal my money. Uh, but it's uh, it's such an interesting thing, and I'm actually kind of happy to see you kind of getting away from macros because I feel like the macro discussion has just been fucking curb stomped. Uh, well, the
3: hard part about it is, is like people become dogmatic about it. They say that you know, either you have to completely eliminate a macro or one of them has to be 5% or 10% of calories. Uh, and people want, this. when they come to me for a solution, say it's for weight loss or weight gain, they want to know if there's a, a particular set of macros that's going to make them more successful. Uh, once you control for protein, I don't think it, it, it's all that important. I just don't like to get below I'm going to say 10%, but i really want to say 15, uh, probably 15 to 20%. I don't think any of the macros should be below 15 or 20% of the, the, your total calories for the day. You get exposed to potential downfalls depending on what your, you know, your goals are. But I just think it's more important to, to focus on the micros. When I get people healthy and by that, I mean, uh, They don't have gas and bloating. They don't have um, acid reflux. They're regular. It was one of the big things that that Shaw said to me. I keep calling him out on every interview. Uh, The first thing he said to me after he got on my diet and we we got together in uh, Sacramento, he leaned over like it was a big secret and he says, Stan, I'm regular. You're like
2: a post from extra large.
3: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that was a huge deal because I lived it. And I know so many athletes that just, they just accept the fact that your stomach's always going to be uncomfortable and you're always going to have, you know, episodes of diarrhea or loose stool uh, because you have to pound down a ton of calories and uh, irrespective, you, you don't, you don't aren't concerned with what types of calories those are. Mm-hmm. You
2: know Possibly what? I? I always thought that, uh, um, and I, God, I, I forgot who told me this years ago, that if I eat something and instantly I get bloated and have like, you know, a bad bowel movement yeah, bad or something, sign. yeah, I, I just don't eat those foods again. I think it was Inclodon, uh mm-hmm. told me that. And he's like, if you could effectively figure out what foods really work well for you where you don't get bloating and diarrhea or having those issues and you can just kind of gravitate towards those. Um, so for me, it was, uh, I mean, <laughs> oddly enough, uh, you know, red meat, eggs, and white rice. Uh, And, you know, on occasion, some gluten free oats. And like, I kind of went through these things and tried everything. And I just kind of looked at it and said, hey, you know, whatever, whatever made me bloat and necessarily gave me a bad bowel movement. I just fucking didn't eat it again. And I remember running into or having a client who was like, you know, uh, every meal I eat, I have terrible diarrhea. And I was like, do you think that's a problem? It's like, no, isn't, isn't everybody like that? (laughs) <laughs> and there's just a lot of people that, like, that becomes their norm, and it's just like, yeah, I just have a terrible stomach.
1: And the real problem is no one's talking about their poo enough. <laughs> no, well,
3: that's why they need to. Luke. to yeah. And I ask, are yeah. you regular? You know, that's important. I Even on my app, uh, I track bowel movements. I want to know when they pee or when they poop. And then the quality of the stool, I have a, a, a little uh, chart to tell me what it's like. I want to know if, if they've got those problems. A lot of people have um, end up with uh, uh, constipation and they'll blame it on the red meat. And no, uh, it's a potassium deficiency. That'll remedy the problem pretty damn quick and, and may, may have magnesium deficiency. Well, you hit the nail and, on
2: the head. And, and hydration too. If you're dehydrated, uh, you're never going to have a good bowel movement.
3: Yeah. Yep, 100%. I'm, and you hit the nail on the head. You said, how does my gut feel? Um, you know, I say that all diets work when they're strictly adhered to. What's the best diet? The one you'll follow. And then I say, I don't eat foods I like. I eat foods that like me. And I make that decision about an hour after I eat. And so that's kind of the design of my diet. I went through just like you said. And over the years, I've discovered these foods work best for me. And they tend to work best for my clients. They tend to be low FODMAP foods. Um, I stay away from the high gas foods. That's why I don't recommend broccoli and cauliflower and asparagus. Because they're high gas foods that bloat people. And that's not to say that they're bad foods. I don't recommend legumes. I don't let my athletes eat bean burritos. And that's not because I think bean burritos are going to kill you. It's because they have a high likelihood of causing gas. Well, that's and why they that call impairs.
2: the magical fruit.
3: Yes, no. indeed. Yeah, I mean, a that impairs digestion, and it can probably Im- impact the next meal. And the meal after that, it has kind of a domino effect. And so I'm particular about what's... What vegetables to eat. I pick spinach for the reason that it's very low gas. It's easy for more people to digest and is high in potassium and magnesium. So I, I get you know a great benefit from that. And I list other low gas vegetables should spinach not be your favorite. Also in terms of fiber, when you don't have a lot of gas and bloating, you're not eating a lot of processed foods and fast foods, you don't need as much fiber because fiber can be a double-edged sword. It can impair protein absorption, it can impede, uh, it can bind to valuable minerals and electrolytes, it can cause expansion of your um, of your intestines, uh, it can cause bloating and gas. So I put in the carrot as a fiber source because it's a root tuber, it's low gas, uh, and it provides the fiber I believe is necessary to, to help with regularity, but more importantly to shuttle toxins out of the body because that's what indigestible fibers do. And so I'm, I'm People talk about the diet being restrictive, but it's only restrictive in so much as I'm trying to minimize kind of a restriction diet uh, like GAPS or FODMAP. I'm trying to minimize the gas and the bloating and improve digestion so that you can feel what it's like and you can garner the benefit of all those great foods um, and, you know, with good digestion. And then when you reintroduce something, you'll quickly be able to discover whether or not that's something Uh, is digestible for you. And so we do have an opportunity to introduce foods ongoing, but I'll say with the vertical diet and I get, uh, I get a hundred DMS a day and emails uh, from people. And lots of times they'll tell me a story about how they've been on the vertical diet. And then they went and ate Carl's jr or had a pizza and, and they just, and they regretted it. And when you stray, you pay when you get your body healthy and then you eat something shitty, you realize just how, uh horrible that food was for you because yeah, it becomes a real yeah
1: a real well, decision. Uh,
2: yeah I, I like I, it. Well I, I was actually going to mention uh with legumes there's a carbohydrate based lectin that acts very similar to gluten in the small intestine. And um, that ends up being very similar. I mean for me, uh and these guys know this, like if I get gluten bombed, it's fucking awful. Um yeah. I mean and, and I don't think
3: everybody has celiac disease either, no. but I avoid wheat because I know as an athlete that when I eat it, I get bloated and gassy, and it, it just tends to give me brain fog, and I just know how I feel on it.
2: Yeah, you feel and terrible. It's it's like for for me and like I do these guys. We've been in the car, and they've been like, "Did you get gluten bombed?" I'm like, "I feel like a sick animal." It's dude. hot in here. Hot it's up here. it's fucking It's, hot. It, it's awful. Yeah, and and then you, and then people are like, "Oh, this this whole celiac." I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I I would never say I'm celiac, but every time I've ever got a food sensitivity or like a food allergy panel done, the number one is always fucking gluten. It's always soy. Uh, uh, corn and like I can go down these and I'm like I just don't eat those foods because they make me feel like shit and then I, I don't sleep well I don't train well and I just avoid them so uh, I don't have to burn myself more than once to know that I'm gonna fucking burn myself it's like if it plates hot I just don't touch it and unfortunately a lot of people we've worked with. <laughs> like don't subscribe to that. I'm like, dude, if like I only got to burn myself once to know it's hot. So like if you eat those foods and fuck yourself up mm-hmm. and you smell like a sick animal and you have problems, then um don't eat those foods again. It doesn't seem complicated.
1: I'm kind of like a five-time guy. After the <laughs> fifth time, it's probably
2: No, you still fucking
1: <laughs> It's probably real, but I yeah. If if I'm feeling dangerous, I'll tell the uh, line.
3: Fuck that, hey, Stan, dude.
1: what's what's your thoughts uh, on introducing organ meats into this whole thing? Is it just like a palatability issue or
3: yeah, generally it is. I know they're nutrient dense. I know we don't eat them as much as we used to, or at least that's my perception from the literature. Although Sean Baker has put forward some information recently suggesting that the Inuits didn't necessarily eat as much organ meats as we may have uh, as we may have ascribed to them, that uh, the muscle meats, they, they tend to eat the fattier muscle meats like the ribeyes and the like. Uh, it's always been said that they would feed the muscle meats to the dogs, but it, it turns out there may be some discrepancy there.
2: I was going to ask you on that. Um- the carnivore diet, which I don't really, we don't call the carnivore diet. We just call it like the rich guy who wants to eat filet mignon everyday diet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, The yeah. problem I have, and like I've, I've argued with Rob Wolf and these guys about it, is like anytime you go, uh, and you know this, anytime you go out to the extremes and things get too fucking far out on the rails, it just becomes unsustainable. And I just, I really just um, get nervous at least, you know, where it's like I'm just going to eat all vegetables or I'm going to eat all meat. I'm like, I think there's a balance for it. And, um, you know, I know I, I was kind of arguing with Rob on this. I'm like, you know, uh, like I think having cruciferous vegetables and including some uh, variation is going to help. I don't know if you can get everything that you need out of meat, but yet, you know, those guys are are big on that carnivore diet. And I just, I think if you're going to do it, you're going to need organ meats. You're going to need to have some other uh, micronutrient sources. So, I'd, yeah, I a-
3: obviously the, the liver is high in vitamin A and you can uh, get some benefit from that and the iron. You said it was something that was important, that's balance. I, I, in my diet, I start off by saying it's simple, sensible, and sustainable. Uh, I do have some restriction based on the information that we just talked about. I'm trying to get people to be able to, to for their gut health and their stool to be uh, good first. And, you know, I introduce, I list exactly what foods to eat, and I do that for a reason, because if somebody asks you for a diet, you give them some macros, uh, they get pissed off. They don't know what to eat. They don't have the experience that we have to make the choices that we make. Uh, same thing would be true with a, a training program. If you don't tell them how many sets and reps and rest period and all of that, they get pissed off. They feel like you've just abandoned them. So I start with a very strict protocol. I do act, actually list, as you know, from reading over the diet, exactly what foods to eat and what foods to avoid. And then I introduce, you know, sample diets and sample macros for different goals. Um, and that gets people started. And then over time, if they want to you know, exercise some flexibility, they know that they, you know, they just need to listen to their body. With respect to carnivore, we're back to keto a little bit in terms of the fact that once you eliminate carbs, now you've got a problem with anaerobic training and, and performance. Uh, also dehydration, potential sodium deficiency if you're not adding it. Uh, but the big thing is, is that if somebody has really extreme digestion problems, that might be where you have to start. They might only be able to eat ribeye uh, and maybe later an uh, egg yolk um, for the first week or two or four because you have to restrict something and that seems to be the least uh, offensive food with the most potential uh, you know, highly valuable micronutrients is steak. Uh, it's really the only superfood in that you could survive, not just survive, but probably thrive on it, you know, uh, maybe not in, in a performance sense like I just talked about. But I'm not opposed to somebody restricting to whatever level they need to to get their gut healthy, to get their digestion healthy. Yeah, that's and a then, good
1: perspective, right?
3: And yeah. then very quickly reintroducing uh, yeah. other foods, fruits, vegetables. Uh, you know, slowly and gradually.
2: Uh, what we found is when you get hyper restrictive and you start limiting yourself, um, when you start reintroducing stuff, I think, uh, you know, you lose some, you know, uh, gut flora, gut biome, whatever you want to call it, that yes. allows it to pro- uh, deal. I, I know, um, when I retired from the NFL, uh, I was having some cognitive issues, you know. I mean, obviously, 10 years of beating my head into a wall every single day. And I remember talking to Matt Lalonde, and he's like, you know, there's some really interesting stuff with the ketogenic diet in terms of, you know, being able to repair the brain. And um, so I, I was, I did not really eat uh, a carbohydrate for almost an entire year. And I came out the other side of it, it was fucking awful. Um, but I felt a 100 times better, and actually, I think it repaired some of the issues that I might have had, you know, cognitively. And, uh, just, I remember like coming out of that and just being like, it took me a number of months to be able to, what I felt like to be able to digest. Yes. It's Um, dose
3: dependent. You're right. It's individualistic and it's dose dependent. When I eliminated milk, sometimes when I reintroduced it at any significant level, I would respond very poorly to it. But if I introduced maybe four ounces for a day for a week, and then went up to eight a day for a week, uh, I, I could tolerate the, the titration of that I would I would develop the the you know the lactose the lactate necessary to, to digest it and the same is true with um, like you said uh, the gut flora and the 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 type of bacteria necessary to digest certain foods can be uh, improved uh, by eating those foods it, it adapts to the foods that you eat I'm just I'm just cautious about how much fiber I take in because, it has a cumulative effect, and the more and more and more of it is still uh, converting indigestible fibers into methane, and then you have you know, the problems with gas. And I'll, I'm also concerned about the minerals and electrolytes that it binds to and the, the impeding of the protein absorption. So mm-hmm. I have to, you know, I just have to go on, uh, kind of like you said, my experience and that of the athletes that I've worked with. Uh, I've, I've noticed that when people come back to me, Stephanie Sanza, a Seth Fit mom from Australia, She's been a client for about nine months now, and when she first started my diet, uh, a lot of folks uh, you know, will always try and game the system. They always find out, well, what, can I take more of this or what have you? So I told her to eat about four baby carrots three times a day just for you know, her fiber intake. So she, Then she comes back at me and says, well, I'm having trouble with gas and bloating. She had really bad IBS uh, and, and large fluctuations in water retention, et cetera, for many years and was doing the fasted cardio in the morning, 40 minutes twice a day. Um, was on a really restrictive diet, under 1,400 calories. And uh, now we've got her up to 1,750 calories. She does no steady-state cardio. She does the 10-minute walks. She does uh, two-a-day hypertrophy trainings. Her IBS is gone. Um, but one of the things she, she did when she sent me her diet is I noticed she had 120 grams of carrots in there three times a day. Well, I didn't really know at first glance what that was because we measure in ounces, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So you're already laughing because yeah. I had to go to the refrigerator and I had to grab the carrots and weigh them to see how much 120 grams was yeah. three times a day. She's taking in 360 grams of carrots a day. That's like uh, I, that's I mean, uh,
2: one and a half you, cups. That's about one and a half a cups. Box. Yeah. Yeah, that's you a lot could of, fill <laughs> a
3: shoebox with the carrots you was a lot eating of every day. And I'm like, no damn wonder you can't digest your food or you're having constipation. So Everybody's always trying to game the system to find the one thing that works, and I'm and I'm I'm saying now this is a this is a a, a a symphony. This is an orchestra, and you have to everything has to be um, optimal and nothing works in deficiency and nothing
2: works in, uh, you know, in toxic doses. So yeah. oh, well, uh, I, I was going to go back on the toxic dose. You said 30 days out, you started taking Dianabol, ball and then the, uh, introduction of the orange oranges, the fructose was helpful. Was there ever a thought that maybe vitamin C, um, you know, being an antioxidant would have been more safe for the liver and maybe that might've been a factor.
3: Yeah, I wondered that. The research didn't seem to support it. It seems that the, actually the fructose seems to be what the liver likes, and the, it makes it healthy and happy, and then it's able to operate better
2: in uh, a small it, it amount. Well, it, in, I mean, because if you think about, uh, you can convert, you know, fructose to glucose uh, in the liver, but over a certain amount, excess once it gets full up, you know, becomes triglycerides. So I guess it's a, it's a dose related amount.
3: Yep, fatty liver is a concern, and that's why I'm very careful about putting in just three or four ounces three times a day. That's uh, about 50 grams. I'm trying to stay under 75 for for folks and then to titrate it throughout the day so it's not one bolus uh, of intake. So, And I had really good luck with it, particularly with people's body temperature and their energy levels. Their metabolism seems to be good, and that's one of the biggest concerns with dieting Mm -hmm. is that, that people get tired and they get weak and they uh, start having cravings and get hungry, and then they just fall off the diet. So I'm always trying to remedy those with satiating foods. So I throw in a potato. I'll have people that are, that are dieting um, actually cut and chew their steak as opposed to mixing up a monster mash, which you're hungry an hour later when you eat monster mash, which is great for strong men, but it's terrible for Normal somebody people. who's trying to lose weight. <laughs> so I, I do try and introduce uh, you know, methods to satiate them over time. Everybody's different in that regard.
2: You know, for me, when I was playing, uh, I used to take my temperature, and it was an indication for me for overtraining or how ready yes. I was to train. So for or me, or your I- morning heart rate. Yeah, I mean, for, so then when I ended up getting hooked up with heart, uh, heart rate variability later on, but early on, I remember taking my temperature, and if uh, I was 98.6 degrees or above, I knew that those training days were going to be better. If I was in the 97s or a 96, I knew that I was under-recovered, and I probably needed to really not do much that day other than chill out, and so in the off-season, I would kind of periodize my training based on the temperature, and then when we'd get into you know the season, I knew that uh, I had to kind of fix my training a little bit so that my temperature was best on game day and it just kind of came down to being able to you know if i ate enough calories what my sleep looked like uh if i'd eaten enough protein and really just what my training it looked like so i tended to put more heavy stuff towards the uh beginning of the week and then kind of do a little bit more you know i guess you could say conditioning or you know some uh, more glycolytic stuff a little later on but i know that temperature thing is huge
3: oh the temperature is huge and you know i used that back in the mid 90s with less gutches who was a just, I think he was a uh, a world champion wrestler, two time uh, uh, NCAA All American or national champion, uh, back in the mid '90s from Oregon State, um, and and he would he would test his uh, his pulse in the morning, and if it was you know elevated by ten beats or so, he would take that day off because you know wrestlers they will not take a day off. And so we had to start measuring that to see if he was overtraining. And since then, of course, they use the, like you said, heart rate variability monitor so they can see how quickly their, their heart rate recovers from, from training. And that's what a lot of coaches do now, but those are huge pieces to, to understanding how your body's responding to uh, all the factors, not just the training, but the sleep deprivation, uh, you know, nutrient deficiencies.
2: So, um, you know, and uh, I, I think when I was in College, so this would have been like '94 through '98. When I would go home during the summer, I would always drive up to Venice Gold, and uh, I did, it was always really interesting because Charlie Glass had uh, was a cow guy, and I got hooked up with him. And I'd go in there and hang out, and uh, I've trained with him a couple times. But it was always interesting to one see the bodybuilders, which uh, I remember walking in and seeing all those guys sitting around eating out of Tupperware containers. But yep. uh, just seeing like Paul Dillett and some of those dudes just, I mean, it, it was uh, it was interesting for me as a young guy to be able to see those dudes and realize like, holy shit, dude, these dudes are like, you know, two ninety three hundred pounds in shape. And to see guys of that size. So it was always that, that place is super interesting.
3: And and what you noticed is they were always eating. It's yeah. it's <laughs> damn near impossible to, to- to fuel a body like that without just eating constantly
2: and terrible gas. I just remember walking in <laughs> and it smelled like rank farts. And I remember thinking like, people were like, what Oh, you train on Venice golds. I'm like, yeah, I went out there. It just it stinks like bodybuilders farting, like high, like high <laughs> protein farts. And I, I forgot who it was. I think it was Sean Ray. Uh, every time I was there had like an SL 500, maybe, maybe it wasn't him, but it was maybe one of those dudes. I remember it was a black guy SL 500 and he would park it right by the front door. That was Flex. Oh, it was Flex Wheeler? Okay. Yeah. And uh, every time I went there, that car was literally like, cars couldn't get around it, and the dude literally parked right in front of the front door. And I just remember pulling up, like it was a red, like a red, uh, you know, like a fire curb. And every time I was there, that car was right there and it never got ticketed. Nobody ever said anything. And I was like, and there was a super Jack Black dude that used to get into it. I'm like, I assume he's probably a fucking <laughs> yeah. world Big champion." That was,
3: yeah. that was flex wheelers. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny. But yeah, I just remember walking in and being like, this place stinks like
1: farts. So, so Stan, what's we up, learned man? a lot from that. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, so you're on the road doing seminars.
3: Yeah, you know, a lot with the, the, uh, the, the vertical diet came out. We had a lot of folks that were interested in, in uh, hearing more about it. And So, uh, you know, I could talk about it on the Internet, but it, it, I like to get out and shake hands and hear people's personal stories. And so I started doing uh, quite a bit of seminars this year. Canada had me up for seven different seminars at the Good Life locations. And uh, I've been to gyms all over the country. We're headed to Switzerland um, next week with Eddie Cohn. Uh, so it's been exciting. Australia in February we've got, uh, we've got a lot of stuff planned,
2: man. No, it's, it's great. It's, uh, I remember when we used to travel a bunch, it's always great to get out and meet people doing the program and like here, I'm, you know, be able to do it and hopefully soon we can get back out on the road. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's, um, it, it, it's inspiring and it's great, man. I'm, I'm glad we got to connect. I'll tell you
3: this. I'll tell you this about traveling. It used to be a pain in the ass. One of the things that I do with my athletes, probably one of the primary things I do is logistics. I help them plan, uh, their meals and their training and their travel and all of that to make sure they have what they need when they need it. And it's convenient and they sleep well and they eat well and they stay at hotels with kitchenettes and they bring their food and, uh, coming to Vegas in two weeks. And I, I called the hotel and they don't have microwaves. Uh, they don't have a fridge in his room. And so I'll make sure and arrange to have that there. When I went to the, um, uh, Arnold last year to help Shaw and Thor, uh, they didn't have fridges and microwaves in their rooms. And so I had to go to Costco and buy them fridges and microwaves and rice makers. And I would wake up at six o'clock in the morning and cook up uh, about 20 pounds of red meat and take it over and divvy it up between them. And I did that every other day because they were eating about four damn pounds of, of red meat a day, uh, that whole week while they were at the Arnold. When I travel, uh, a little, it's in the vertical diet. I talk about the thermos. Like my grandfather used to take to the railroad when he worked uh, when he was a young man, but I, I ordered these thermos from Amazon, and I have like ten of them now. And when I went to the UK, I took six of them with hot meals in them. I would cook up a monster mash; it was moist with, and it was really, really steaming hot. And I would put it in the thermos. It's a twenty-four ounce thermos, and I would stick six of those in my travel bag. Uh, even like when I went to Canada last week, I threw three of them in there, and. So every three or four hours, whatever it is, I'm eating the foods that I want to eat that I know feel good on me and it's a nice hot meal and I'll throw a couple oranges and a bag of carrots in my bag and I can have meals for 12, 14, 16 hours if necessary and I help my athletes plan that. I think meal prep is, I don't just think it, I know it from the research, uh, the meta-analyses that have been done on successful outcomes for um, dieters in particular. And we know it's the same case for, for athletes. Meal prep is the number one thing that you need to manage for, for success, uh, both for dieting and for athletics. And whether or not you prep it or we prep it, you know, I started a meal prep company. Uh, we did, my partners and I. Uh, and we, we now sell Monster Mash to every doorstep in, in the United States, in the 48 contiguous states, along with a bunch of other uh, meals. And I encourage people that if if you've got your meals prepped and you've got Tupperwares in the fridge, or when you leave the house, if you've got a couple of thermos in your bag with an orange and some carrots or whatever, that you're golden. I can do anything, go anywhere, and I'm telling you, I don't stress. Uh, I don't have to eat airport food. I don't have to, you know, sit for two hours hungry because I'm in customs somewhere.
1: So they don't mm-hmm. they don't jam you up at TSA.
2: Yeah.
3: No, you just have to open it up and show it to them.
1: Fuck I, I, I man, entertain- we've.
2: Yeah, early. would they take on our food? Uh, yeah, I had a.
1: We used to have a. Uh, me and Ben Oliver used to make bags of chili, so we'd have it in a Ziploc <laughs> yeah, bag, and you snip wet. that, you snip that fucking corner and squeeze it in your mouth. And so it was,
3: <laughs> it's too wet. They won't huh. let you take in yogurt or yeah. peanut butter or toothpaste or Dude. anything that's a cream. And so the monster mash is is looks pretty solid. Yeah, it's yeah, not, not too wet. It's not soupy.
1: Yeah, so what I we ended up doing—burger and rice. What we ended up doing, and I know, like, I guess before we knew the benefits of red meat, we'd put whole fucking rotisserie chickens through the X-ray uh, in our fucking bags, and mean, they'd be like, "Is there a chicken in you your mean carry-on?" Fucking cat food. Yes. I
2: call it fucking <laughs> that cat food. The uh, uh, just laughing when you said milk or uh, yogurts trying to get through cut, or get through TSA with my wife when uh, when she was like breastfeeding with the kids, yep. yeah, and then pumping and getting this whole thing, like was literally fucking like a heavyweight fist fight. Cause I mean, obviously you got kids and you're married, uh, those fucking assholes trying to open breast milk and then potentially not letting her get through. I was like, dude, she's going to fucking stab these people. We're going to go to jail. Yep. <laughs> like I, and, and I, and I remember talking with the, uh, the, uh, the TSA guy and being like, listen here, motherfucker. <laughs> like, uh, she's breastfeeding. That's the fucking breast milk. If you don't let this shit go through, somebody's going to fucking die. And it's probably going to be me. Mm-hmm. And the, and then these guys are like, oh, you know. And I'm just
1: like, hey, you like. Then did they grab your crotch after that? Because uh, every time we travel, that's what they tend to do.
2: So uh, I went through TSA security and there was a bullet in my bag from uh, Obviously, I have a concealed carry, but I had a bullet in there and they fucking literally uh, blackballed me so I couldn't get through on uh, pre-check. T- TSA pre check. Um, I don't know if you've read anything about the scanners, the body scanners, but it's. Uh, There's some really interesting stuff in terms of like partial radiation and some of the issues and things that it's just not fucking good in those scanners. So, what I'll do is I'll opt out, which will also, when I did go through the scanner, my crotch area would always come up as an area of concern. (laughs) So, these dudes would literally feel my fucking balls. And so, I got to the point where I was just opting out and being like, okay, let's get at it. And like these dudes are sitting there watching me and they're like, these guys fucking touch your crotch it's every time. It it's
1: it's heavy petting. It is. It's unreal. And like
2: I, I told the guy, I'm, I'm like, jealous. Uh, they're like, uh, "What's in your pants?" I'm like, uh, "I'd be my penis," and I got some balls. <laughs> and uh, I'm sorry that maybe mine's a little thicker than yours, and your fucking twenty million dollar X-ray machine can't see through my fucking testicles. <laughs> Fuck you. And uh, I get fucking salty. Like they've taken food from me. Mm-hmm. I like um. I fucking hate traveling. So my goal would be if I would just either a transporter. Or uh, our own plane. That's my deal.
1: You could just get your testicles and penis removed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, or I, I could just the, get through fucking pre-check.
3: That's the point of the whole conversation. What you just put on right there is, is that that it can be a miserable experience or what I've experienced from planning ahead and having uh, you know, the Monster Mash. And, um, I helped uh, Shaw. We sent meals with him to Dubai. Uh, Thor will be here in two weeks and we'll have all his meals here for him. But that is a huge component. I get police, fire, and ambulance that reach out to me all the time about how to um, you know, coordinate their day because mm-hmm. they they, don't, they can't break. Um, I get nurses and doctors that work shift work, the 24s. Uh, those people really benefit from this thermos. That, that food will stay hot for 12, 14 hours if you, you have to make it moist. Not wet, but moist, that's what the the bone broth does. And I'll mix a few like uh, scrambled eggs in with a monster mash, maybe um, dice up a little bit of peppers or spinach if I wanna really go crazy put some the white rice and some, uh, are you uh, sure
2: you don't know my mom? Because this sounds like <laughs> when you we were growing up, she would, uh, um, so th- this is kind of a side note, but my mom, she was an accountant and one of her clients was actually Taco Bell and taco. This is back in like the 60s, 70s and, yeah. uh, Taco Bell would buy, uh, Buffalo meat because it didn't have as much shrinkage. So there wasn't as much loss so they could buy less Buffalo yeah. meat compared to beef. And then they would mix it with that for, to, re- uh, to control shrinkage. And so I remember like whenever we would go, she was always like big on Buffalo because she could buy, she knew that when we cooked, it was more. So, I mean, like there's a bunch of, that's why I'm always like, God damn, Uh, Doris Walborn, pretty sharp. So that's why I asked him like, do you know my mom? So,
3: so, so when we're advertising this show, we're going to have to uh, say, find out why John's crotch is an area of concern and how he controls shrinkage. (laughs)
2: <laughs> we'll call it monster mash that's actually uh, what uh, Tex refers yeah. to as crotch as monster mash
3: <laughs> yeah only on the weekends so. during the holidays
1: <laughs> every, every other day yeah, it's yeah. the tack hammer yeah. <laughs> well, uh, just kidding buddy so, we'll get you uh, waxed up in no time not to tell
2: uh, not to throw Tex under the bus but uh, we it did it sounds uh, like
1: you're about to throw <laughs> me under <laughs> the bus we
2: deadli- bus is coming we deadlifted some 10RMs today which is uh, for anybody listening you should never do as Stan fucking knows like 10 like pulling 10 10 rm on a deadlift is awful uh, yeah. um we did it uh a couple of months ago uh tex pulled a 10 rm and couldn't crack one fu- Whoa, you couldn't crack I'm your 10 rm for one rep potassium, no monster mesh. no monster <laughs> mesh. but dude uh we were fucking dying he gets underneath it and i'm like okay you know thinking 10 rm and doesn't
1: crack it for fucking one <laughs> Uh, That's
2: terrible. No, it you was know, fucking can... bad. Uh, I'm I'm thinking maybe vertical diet I mean, but
1: Stan, on the bright side, <laughs> the good news yep. is uh, we just recently were wrapping up a fundraiser, text raised tw- over twenty thousand dollars for pediatric cancer, and put on the line if he were to break this ra- fundraising threshold, that we can wax his body because he is a hairy, hairy man. Uh, I'm trying I mean, like, uh, so the wax
2: like on. he's the stunt double for Chewy in fucking Star Wars. <laughs> oh wow. You got any advice on
3: the head, man? I'm (laughs) telling you every time I, I, the training is the fun part. That's the easy part. I since college always got to bed at 10 o'clock. I always had all my meals, always had my hydration on point. And every time I went to the gym, it was euphoric. And I still feel the same way today that because I'm on point with everything I do outside the gym, Mm -hmm. Every time I go to the gym, it's just euphoric. I, I love training. It's kind of like Arnold talk about coming in the morning and I come at night. Oh, yeah. it, for me, when, I, when I'm training, it, it was always like that. When I was powerlifting, I'd go to the gym and it just everything seemed light. It just it was uh-huh. unbelievable. And that's because I was every single meal, every single hour of sleep, every nap, every glass of water and hydration that I took in throughout the day. Uh, so that the training becomes fun. You, uh, when, when, you we spoke get, on, you what, when we
2: spoke on the phone years ago, uh, asked you about sleep. And, uh, I think you told me that you were like, was it sleeping? Like, uh, when you were training for to cause you won the, the masters, uh, Mr. Olympia, uh,
3: nationals to, to win my
2: pro card. Yeah. Um, but I remember yeah. you, uh, was it flex Wheeler or a guy you were training with? Yeah. Uh, you told me, I think, what did you say? You were sleeping like 10 hours a day and then it was like two, yep. three hour naps. Or something they, like, I, I can't remember what it was. but
3: It was, yeah, two 30-minute naps, and I was sleeping nine hours a night. But that's all I did. It was eat, sleep, and train. I was getting in eight meals a day, and I was training twice a day. We'd, we'd meet up in the morning. We'd meet up in the late afternoon, and we would train. It was just like 45 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at night. Unless it was leg day, we'd probably put an hour in in the morning. But, but I to me, the frequency was important. The volume was good. I didn't uh, I didn't spend over an hour in the gym. I I always suggest like we mentioned earlier rather than doing cardio, I'd rather do two workouts. Mm-hmm. Those aren't two hour and a half workouts. It's 40 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes at night. That's plenty to provide the stimulus. What really matters, you know, the stimulus is what is, is all you need to do. Don't annihilate, stimulate don't annihilate. And what really matters is what you do outside the gym. Are you getting adequate sleep? Are you getting your meals on point? You know, is everything uh you know efficient and, and nutrient dense and then are you getting adequate hydration yeah tex
2: yeah tex you fucking couldn't crack you your fucking 10 rm for, for one Ten rm for one
3: i want to see I, a uh, i want to see a thermos on your table next time
2: you next know what, maybe tex. yeah uh, i dude, like it, yeah. i might just invite stan to come over uh and just fucking belittle you well, stan I, you got, got anything
1: in austin texas
3: not yet but we're working
2: Mm, on it dude uh
1: we might have facility for you want to
2: be a host and we definitely know all the good places to eat there's a lot of barbecue here and uh, it's good stuff we know a lot of good places
3: i wouldn't be able to do it i'd wreck my gut That, that i always avoid the vegetable oils and they tend to cook everything in that damn canola oil doesn't matter where it is
2: no, we, we got some pretty good barbecue places that just like just smoke the meat. I don't like sauces. All I like is uh, I just like the smoked the dry, meat. Yeah, yeah the, the dry, dry stuff. Okay. So we got some good places.
3: I'll try it. Dry bake for me.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're in. Well, cool, man. Thank you very much, dude. It was yeah, enlightening. It was awesome. great to connect.
3: Thanks, John. Thanks, Tex. Thanks, Luke. I appreciate the invitation.
1: Yeah, yeah cool. thank you very much. Stay in touch.
3: All right, guys. Take care. See you.
1: Bye. Got a
0: It's time for you to empower your performance. Test out Stan's vertical diet, find him on the speaking circuit, or see what gets him fired up by visiting www.staneffording.com. This episode officially comes out Thanksgiving week, and from everyone here at Power Athlete and Wade's Army, we want to thank you for your continued support. While we would probably never even do this work if we didn't selfishly love it, your shared enthusiasm makes it possible to keep pushing out the information that will empower your performance and battle the bullshit.